we got another day of NBA action. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and Sirius XM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and Sirius XM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus Trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. So I just got back from Sacramento, a little easier drive up the freeway of hell, I-80 at 10 p.m. on a Saturday night. So I'm back. I got back to my computer. I sat down and I woke it up from sleep and I was like, wait, why are all these windows from like Oklahoma City and Minnesota still on here? Have I like not used this computer in a few days? I was like, oh, wait, no, that was fucking last night. <laughs> that game was last night so much has happened since then but how you doing man good to have you back good to be back and it feels natural that the place that we should start here is with the final game of saturday and that is a big fun i'm we'll talk about i'm sure the atmosphere that you felt inside the golden one center win for the sacramento kings headlined punctuated by De'Aaron fox's 38 points and malik monk's 32 which i thought was really important for this game i'm sure we'll get into both of those well i thought it was punctuated by vivek rada Dive uh putting his hand on top of De'Aaron fox's hands as De'Aaron fox was uh was lighting the pee and that's a, that's what i thought really punctuated it at yeah. the end but it, it was fantastic being in the building and clearly there was a, a huge excitement level in sacramento i if you follow me on instagram at nate b duncan or i tweeted it too i have this amazing jersey compilation of all of the kings over the years that were walking around with uh, or the jerseys that people were rocking walking around the concourse the golden one center about 20 minutes before tip off did you see the one that i messaged you the scalabissier <laughs> well yes i did <laughs> unbelievable i mean there are some great ones and there's a uh, reggie theus uh, i thought actually the one that really got me was bobby hurley nice i i mean i haven't thought of him in as an nba player in so long. i mean he ended up getting in that car accident i think after his rookie year i want to say and he never ended up doing much for the kings uh let's see who else was in there that was really obviously there was uh ron artest was in there i saw uh, people rocking like uh warriors richmond jersey and a warriors weber jersey which was like i didn't really understand what that <laughs> was supposed to mean that was really odd there's a a ton i've never seen more jerseys uh, like personalized jerseys with just the person's own name on them uh, on the back there's like a whole hernandez family walking around they all had personalized jerseys that said hernandez different numbers on it that's you don't see that too much in Golden state i think probably my favorite one though which I just, it's so juvenile, but I had to laugh, was uh, the King's jersey number 69, and it said Saboner. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. (laughs) Whenever you can sneak something like that past 
the sensors what was the jersey that you the fake jersey that you made at summer league like that sixers jersey oh god oh i've done some bad ones (laughs) it Um, was it it wasn't it wasn't uh prurient at all uh no it was well i used to do this idea of jerseys that would haunt fan bases um yeah and so i think it might have related to one of those like i at one time almost like like i've there, there are some fun ones that you could do with like draft picks that almost happened i mean i was thinking about this a little bit with the one time sixers draft pick mikhail bridges playing against them playing against his hometown team today uh, we'll talk about that game of course much much later but like i mean if you wanted to troll warriors fans a billy owens warriors jersey would have been a pretty funny one um instead of the richmond warriors one you go with the guy they traded mitch richmond for yeah no, that that would be great. No, I think the one you had was like a uh, like number four pick or something like that. Like they were, it was like one of the protected picks. I that nearly they had. created. I that might have been the Lakings jersey that I created. I did one Maybe, of those. Yeah, I had one of those too. Well, in any event, it was great atmosphere before the game. It was a little weird because they were doing the like you have to put your t shirt on, you have to put your t shirt on, and. The PA announcer was like, "Yeah, j- just wear it for the opening ceremony. Wear it for the the uh, for the introduction." They didn't really do anything that was like that special that I saw. They had these, like, they all they handed out these like mini glowing purple beams to everybody, and I guess it was like supposed to look cool with the white t-shirt. And the guy's like, "Yeah, you could take it off as soon as uh, the introduction's over, but we have to do it for the introductions. We're gonna be on ABC, and so that it, that wasn't like the most organic <laughs> feeling there." And uh, I, I mean, it was pretty noteworthy, at least for when I looked at it a couple days ago, that the tickets for this game are like way more expensive for than the, the Golden State tickets uh, were, are going to be for this series and than they normally are, for certainly for a first round game. The crowd was very into it when good things happened for the Kings. I didn't think it was like quite at the level of some of the peak playoff crowds that I've seen, whether it was uh, 2013 Oracle or those Thunder crowds that were those games three and four that we went to in 2016. By the way, I've been to three Warriors road playoff games. They've lost all three of them. And so I like they were really, really loud when good things would happen, but there wasn't much like spontaneous chanting. There wasn't much just like spontaneous standing or exhortation well, of the team that, like that independent also, of good things happening that could also relate to the pricing of it you know like it can be a circumstance much like you and i have talked about at chase and other places that if you if the tickets are going for that much you might if it but i mean some people won't sell them at all but like hey that's that's a possibility too yeah i i will say walking around the concourse i didn't get the impression that it was the like patagonia vest crowd like you get a lot of it at chase center these days uh, but like I would say this was more akin to maybe a Warriors 2017 type like home playoff crowd rather than one of the like really good playoff crowds from like 13, 14, 15, even 16. Um, way better than the Chicago playoff games I've been to, though, that's for <laughs> sure. I'll tell you that. Um, but yeah, so I, I mean, it's, I was like, I was expecting it to be like just like a little bit more spontaneous. And the crowd was like kind of taken out of the game. Warriors led by eight. Steph goes out and then they go on a huge run led by Trey Lyles. And that then the crowd got into it and they're pretty, pretty nuts in the fourth quarter. Um, Where do you want to start with the actual game? I want to start by praising the Kings. Um, I have plenty of criticism for the Warriors coaching staff and that will come soon enough. But uh, the the Kings are the story here. And I thought that De'Aaron Fox had 
had some absolutely massive moments and I and brought him Malik Monk. And I think Monk in particular, the thing that was striking to me is that he played the final 1625 of this game. You know, not I'm not criticizing Keegan Murray for this, but like Keegan Murray came, did his normal rest in the first in the third quarter, and then Malik Monk just never came out because he was playing so well. Monk, 32 points, 14 of 14 from the line. And so Fox and Monk were really lighting the Warriors up. Yeah, and the Warriors said that after the game, we, we really, or I think it was Raymond who said we really were focused on him as a shooter and not as a driver. And Fox, uh, uh, Monk, maybe even more so than Fox, I thought really took advantage of the way that the Warriors decided to play on the perimeter. That was one of my big things that I was looking at extremely closely is how are they going to deal with that handoff game with Sabonis? And the answer was that they were extremely concerned about Herter. Herter was the guy and Herter didn't do much in this game. He was just three of 12. He missed some open looks, but he was 0-5 from three, only had two assists and six points in 31 minutes. That was the guy that were like, no, we're not letting, they're treating him like Clay Thompson, like Steph Curry. If he came open off the screen, what they were doing was they were actually like most of the stuff for him is he's coming off at the top. And so like, if he came off a screen along the baseline and he was going to get open, usually they would switch that like Draymond did a lot of that. Like he was kind of the quarterback on the back line, just deciding when they're going to switch and when not basically. But then if they brought Herter off the weak side, then they would bring actually the guard all the way over from the top. If Herter got open rather than wanting to have the big up top, because they didn't want to let Sabonis get going with the backdoor game. They wanted to keep the big in position, but then that led to, they had a similar philosophy in pick and roll. They're in a deep drop with Kevon Looney a lot of the time, or even Draymond, but Looney in particular, who played played 31 minutes in this game, which uh, I'm sorry, 32 minutes. I'm, you may have more to say about that, I'm guessing. But so that meant that Malik Monk was able to just come off a screen and he's really athletic and he got downhill and that's how he got a lot of those free throws. He would get some in transition to come off pick and roll as well. But basically he could just come off a screen and just get a huge runway into the lane and the Warriors just could not deal with that. He only took four three-point attempts and so that was nine twos and four, the 14 free throws that you mentioned. And, and he was electric. He was electric. And it was I was something that struck me during the game is remembering, you know, you and I, one of the fun things is we do these young player reports and everything. Malik Monk converted 38% of his twos his rookie year, 46% his second year. And those were that was when he was making his threes at a reasonable clip. We're like, oh man, if he ever puts it together. And then he had that third year where he made all his twos and missed all his threes. And to see Monk become this confident, this aggressive, and I know there were Warriors partisans complaining on Twitter that Malik Monk has 14 free throw attempts and Steph Curry has two. And yeah, Curry probably should have gotten a couple extra calls, but Malik Monk earned a vast majority of those free throws. He was aggressive. He was drawing contact. He was getting in there. And the Kings did some some work when they were in the bonus already. And I thought Fox earned his 12 free throws for the most part as well. And so I thought that aggressiveness, understanding what the advantages were and pressing them hard was something that Sacramento did well. And they did those things. Things, I, there, there was a good quote from Mike Brown that I'm going to get slightly wrong and they talked about in the broadcast about basically like you need to run even harder in the second half just because they knew that was the advantage they had and Sacramento won this game over a capable Warriors team with a 95 half court offensive rating and they did that by running hard by getting a ton of second chance points the um, they had an offensive rebound rate of 40.4 and as the 
NBA's official stats credited, they had 21 second chance points. So even though they were actually below 50% on second chance opportunities, they still had those points. And so they were able to cultivate those advantages and that was able to, in part, sustain them. Yeah, it was pretty impressive. Like their their philosophy, like get, getting running in the second half in particular, it was really good. And they continued to push it off of makes, off of misses, and just, just enough so that the Warriors weren't just they're waiting that because the, the slower you go the more draymond green can organize things and react and they can get their help in position so that's obviously a, a huge component of this any other 17 offensive rebounds for sacramento were huge you know that's what sabonis had a really poor game which we'll talk about but that was the one thing that he was able to do it wasn't even necessarily get many stickbacks, but he did have five offensive rebounds harrison barnes had four so that was nine of their 17 right there and then their other big Trey Lyles who was huge in that stretch at the end of the third early fourth hitting a couple of threes getting a couple of offensive rebounds and stick backs there as the Kings surged in front uh I think they outscored them like 23 to 5 when Steph was off the floor something like that 23 to 8 so yeah that was really impressive by the Kings I think we should go back to Fox's game though sure Uh, 38 points 13 to 27 29 in the second half only 8 to 12 from the line he could have had a 40 burger only had five assists and a lot of what he did some of it was pick and roll and some of it was getting to the rim but what did his shot chart ultimately look like I, I thought that this was it was pretty interesting where he ended up doing most of his damage from agreed fox so he took 27 shots eight of which were threes he split those so that means De'Aaron fox took 19 two-pointers o- 11 of those 19 were flaw- were away from the were paint non-restricted area you had a name that you liked for that now i can't remember what it was ah the, the upper paint the upper paint yeah so he had 11 in the upper paint six of 11 there one of three in the restricted area two of five on long twos and so it was fox getting into the lane not necessarily trying to finish through traffic though he did of course also get to the line 12 times and as you mentioned he missed four of those and and so for fox it was getting getting into those spots and making the defense react that also contributed to some of the five assists that he had and so yeah it was that it was that floater range it wasn't get all the way in and yam on somebody it was get to a spot and get a shot you were confident in and it particularly started to tell early in the third when it seemed like the warriors were going to take control they go up 10 and fox really helped them get back into it by just eschewing the screen completely and attacking the likes of Dante DiVincenzo just one-on-one and getting to a nice mid-range shot and that's been the big difference for Deere and Fox this year and part of why he's probably going to win the clutch player award and was awesome and pretty much unstoppable again today just he's got this amazing quickness you have to respect his drive but now he also is a great threat on those mid-ranges even you know he's not taken 20 footers he's taken 16 footers and but he's able to get wide open for that shot and then with the spacing that the Kings have around him, it's very difficult to get the ball out of his hands. And we'll, we'll talk maybe about whether that's something that needs to happen or not, uh, depending on how they, they choose to try to get him going in the next game. But yeah, there wasn't much he could do. And then particularly going four of eight from three, like you don't expect that from him. Uh, he's he's improved enough as a three-point shooter. Remember, he's shooting like the mid-20s last year before the trade. And then all of a sudden he turned into Superman for a little bit when they, and then they shut him down because they weren't going to make the playoffs. And then he uh, has continued this year to have that shot be enough of a weapon uh, that obviously is capable of going four of eight in a game. So that those are 
the two biggest things that the Warriors defense had to deal with. The Kings three-point shooting, they started four out of 21. They then proceeded to make eight of their last 11 and, of course, got to the line relentlessly as well on the way to 71 second-half points. In the fourth quarter, Sacramento was 10 of 12 from the line, 5 of 6 from 3, and then overall 10 of 19 from the field. So they were 5 of 13 on twos, but they were but that 5 of 6 and 3, 10 of 12, that's a part of how you can get, they can get 35 points. So teams were throwing a lot of haymakers, and I think that's a natural transition into what I wanted to talk about with the Warriors when it comes to coaching. And of course, we'll have plenty more praise to heap on the King. To me, there have been two persistent, salient criticisms of Steve Kerr as a coach. One of them is his reluctance, if not outright refusal, to tailor his game plan to an opponent's strengths and weaknesses, specifically their weaknesses most typically. And then the second one is his propensity to, at times put out lineups that don't have a theory. And I thought particularly the second of those was the bigger story in this game. You highlighted one of them, but I want to actually start with the second one that I noticed. And that, the stretch for me, you brought up the kind of the mid-third as a key stretch for Darren Fox. I wholeheartedly agree. There was another one, and that was the early fourth quarter. Early fourth quarter, Fox has seven points in about four minutes. Monk also gets a couple couple makes during that stretch. And the Kings, they pushed out, I think five was the most they led by in that stretch. And Draymond had come back on the floor. We'll talk about the non-Draymond on non-Curry minutes. But what I was noticing is I'm like, oh man, he's Fox is doing a great job, but he's not really facing a lot of resistance. And what I realized is, in part because they both came off the bench, and in part because Kerr wanted them both to close, those were not only non-Curry minutes, they were also non-Wiggins, non-Gary Payton minutes. And so what that meant was, they had Draymond on the floor, Draymond's an amazing defender, but they didn't really have anyone that they trusted to check De'Aaron Fox. And it's another way of tailoring your rotation, tailoring your philosophy to the opposition you face is it's like okay these are the organizational imperatives you want somebody on the floor who can guard De'Aaron Fox every second De'Aaron Fox is on the floor and both at the beginning of each half and in these stretches of the second and fourth quarters the Warriors didn't and those were some of his best stretches of the game yeah it's a great point and now Wiggins coming off the bench playing 28 minutes that was even a little more than expected I don't Gary Payton might well be on a minutes limit himself I mean he, he coming and, back and from he that had, core and, muscle and, issue and yeah. he had something going on in the late third early fourth he might have just been unavailable but it also didn't seem like that was going to be his minutes time anyway his time anyway yeah I mean he he always looks like he's taking some sort of a knock like you're you just look at him you're like sometimes the way he'll just be like doubled over like you ex- you almost expect like the alien to just burst out of his body like there's just like something going on in there, but he he manages to make these incredible plays at times. Like some of the shot blocks that he went for and attempted, I mean, are just you don't see guards do that. And I do think the Warriors' best group is Peyton and Wiggins, Clay, Draymond, and Steph. And they, I thought Kerr took too long to get to that group. Now, of course, the Looney Draymond group uh, with Wiggins, like that's the lineup that has the best net rating in the league of any minutes, uh, any unit that's played more than 300 minutes. And it was awesome, of course, last year as well. But I didn't think Looney, thought he was pretty good against Sabonis, but he also didn't really do much as a rim protector and as like a drop coverage room protector you know I, I think we may see them bring looney further up on the pick and roll to just not let those guys get such a head of steam going downhill in the next game but i thought again they just didn't like wiggins guarding fox like that was okay but i think peyton is like really the guy there 
Uh, and of course, Fox was going after Curry. They they went after Jordan Poole a ton, as would have been expected. And, and so, it was also it was yeah. also a reminder. I thought this was this loomed larger points in the fourth quarter that Clay Thompson isn't that guy either at this point in his career. You know, Clay. No. There were some times where Clay ended up on De'Aaron Fox and got absolutely torched. I mean, defensively, you think of Clay Thompson now as a three or a four. Like that is the way the Warriors need to consider him. I thought uh, Clay did well on Herder, but yeah, it's a little more difficult for him on the uh, on the really quick guys and yeah i mean six seven 32 year old who wasn't unbelievably athletic to start with like yeah it's, it's asking a lot of him to be at that level but i i thought this is really in the end and i and i will i'll start by crediting the kings here sabonis as bad as he was offensively and i thought he was really bad in the first half defensively as well in part because they just were trying to have him out on the floor more and then they're able to get behind him and he, he did nothing as a rim protector zero block shots in the game and but he was i thought pretty mobile pretty active the king's second half defense was better and part of that was going to a box in one with harrison barnes on curry i think maybe that was a little bit overrated uh i did ask well, well here I'll, I'll get to that actually uh but and so they tried to have alex line who actually was pretty good in this game stay more along the baseline try to have sabonis stay along the baseline go to the box in one or more of a two three and i thought the warriors attacked that reasonably well they would set a screen for Steph, and then that would still lead to two being on the ball and then they were able to still get the four on three going downhill with Draymond. They got a, a Kaminga dunk. They got a, a Gary Payton backdoor, I think, out of that. So it, it looked pretty decent. Clay Thompson was, when he was out there, could shoot over that zone as well. You'll remember Nick Nurse only went to that when Clay was out of the game back in the 2019 finals. But I think the important thing to remember here, right? Like I, I was talking a little bit with Bob Vulgaris about Alex Len, right? And like, you know, Alex Len, you're like, what the fuck do they have him out there? He's been their backup center the last few weeks. But with when Steph is off the floor i think they're able to go to len it's like it's not like alex len is gonna be some world beater it's like hey if he could just like disrupt like two layups over the course of the game like even that is more than you might expect and he was able to do that uh, and get a couple of offensive boards but the thing that was really shocking to me because they didn't do too much boxing in the last five minutes of the game they ran one steph curry draymond green pick and roll in the last five minutes of the game. like that was shocking to me uh i'm not forgetting one am i i, I don't think so <laughs> I, mean, I don't i don't recall yeah. any more than that uh, I mean, they were running a lot of like, you know, these like this option play for Clay where he could either like take an exit screen or pop up to the top and he got open once and missed it. The other time he kind of just got hung up. And but like when you get the ball to when you run the play for Clay at that point, it's like you're probably going to get a contested jump shot. You know, you're better. I think you're better maybe putting him in like on ball screening action as a pick and pop. He uses gravity that way. But ultimately, the one stuff Draymond pick and roll they ran was after they put Peyton in and uh, Steph got Barnes switched onto him and he was able to hit a, a step back to cut it to two and they were down five with under two minutes to go. But maybe the thought was, well, we can't run the stuff Draymond pick and roll because they're just putting a small on Draymond. Sabonis is hiding out on Looney and so we can't really take advantage of Sabonis. It'll just be a small. But those two guys can still kind of interact with each other and cause miscommunications or Steph could just beat whoever it is. But that was part of why I felt like they needed to take 
Looney out of the game at that point too, both for more defense on Fox, but also to just get a little bit more uh, to, have to change the choice in the action. Yeah, exactly. Right. To, to, to change the options that are available. And yes, Mike Brown could have had Sabonis, you know, guarding Gary Payton or some do something else there, but it, it's that's less palatable than oh, you have a center, like let's just put him on the center. And if you if they want to put him on GP, then that's going to create a bunch of other challenges as well. And so yeah, you have you have those identification, you know, putting pressure on the opposition to do things. And then the other one, and you you talked about this during the game, and it was it was plain as day in the in the second half is. They pull Steph Curry, who's running pretty well in the beginning of the third quarter. He comes out with about two minutes to go. I think it was 217 technically. And almost immediately, the Kings go on this huge 15 to 4 run and completely change the tenor of the game. And it wasn't just, you know, Steph Curry's going to have to sit at some point. Like, they're, they're not, they, they, Curry played 37 minutes in this game. You're not really going to realistically see him play more than that. It's okay, what's the lineup that's out there? And it was Poole, Peyton, Wiggins, Looney, and Clay Thompson. That was the group that was out there for for those non-Curry, non-Draymond minutes. And it doesn't sound like a horrendous lineup of five players, but there isn't really anybody to create. And like Poole's going to have to, I guess, do all the work creating an offensive advantage. And there are also lots of places to help off. And so that group wasn't really generating any good shots. And Sacramento did a good job in transition. There are places they can attack. And so those non-Curry, non-Draymond lineups got smoked. We got another day of NBA action, so it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and Sirius XM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and Sirius XM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Yeah, they did. And I asked Steve Kerr, why did Draymond only play 33 minutes? At one point, he had like gone into the tunnel. He then said that he, uh, when he was asked about it, he said he had just banged knees. He got looked at real quickly. But Steve was like, no, I never had any indication that like he wasn't available for a period. And now Draymond didn't play that many minutes in last year's postseason either. But, you know, you'd hope that he could play high 30s. And so I, I asked her about that. Here's what he said. I also asked him about the lack of stuff, Draymond pick and roll. So his answer wasn't incredibly illuminating, but I asked him, uh, here, I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you guys. Hey, Coach, a couple things. One, Draymond played 33 minutes tonight. We saw him go back into the tunnel at one point in the fourth. Was there an issue there with him that normally would be playing, I think, high 30s in the playoffs? Uh, no, no, no issue. Just, um, he was Draymond was great out there. So um, I, I, I didn't even know he was in the tunnel. So he was. I just talked to him after the game. He was great, and everybody's in good spirits. So sometimes a few minutes less. You know, I know you guys can nit, nitpick that stuff, but it's uh, you know, it, it, he he played well, and he was out there for some good stretches, and uh, we'll we'll, uh, we'll bounce back. 
And the second point, uh, the the uh, stuff Draymond pick and roll, it's been a staple for you guys at the end of games for a while. Only ran it, I think, one time. I counted tonight uh, in the last five minutes or so. Any particular reason for that? Well, you know, they played a, a lot of box and one tonight, uh, so they tried to disrupt, uh, you know, some of the pick and roll game, and so that that um, you know forced us to do some other things. But um, yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's all that's all part of it. So we'll look at the tape, and if that's you know something we need to do more of, then we'll do more of that. So yeah, I mean, I think he just kind of I don't know. It's it it seemed like this was a very and I'll say maybe even from Mike Brown also, but it, it seemed like this is a very game one type of coaching job. You know, 37 minutes for Curry, 37 minutes for Thompson, 33 for Green. Wiggins is coming back in. So like there's, they don't have as much chance to kind of think out the rotations. This isn't a team that they're familiar with. They're just trying to get their group back. So I, you know, they could have won this one. They probably should have. Uh, the, the Kings were good enough between Monk and Fox. You know, clearly Monk is just someone that, that they were they just wasn't at the top of their scouting report for him to score 32 points and be this type of driver and trey lyles really saved them good with 16 points they just gave he comes they were so unconcerned with him that he came into the game in the first half and they just never matched up with him and they just mm-hmm. threw it ahead to him for a wide open corner three like immediately after the first possession when he checked back in anything else from like the king's side that stood out to you well, I, w- I want to bring up a little bit. I mean, Trey Lyles is, of course, for some people will be associated with the trade he was involved in years and years ago with Donovan Mitchell. But like he, his blossoming into a valuable rotation piece for this Kings team. Has, Most valuable guy in that trade has, <laughs> in the end, right? The Bagley trade. That's all he came from Detroit in the Bagley trade. Has been and really DiVincenzo important. was in that trade too. DiVincenzo was in that trade too. And so last year... Trey Lyles, 59% true shooting on 21 usage. That was a, a lot of that was that weird Detroit team, but then he also did well in sack. And then this year, 61% true shooting on 18 usage. And like we, we talked at one point about, you know, one of the arguments for Mike Brown for coach of the year is that he was able to find enough on his bench. And Len had some good moments here. Lyles, of course, was huge. Monk was massive. And then Davion Mitchell, I thought, played, played good defense overall, had some good passes. You know, he didn't do a lot of scoring, but they didn't need him to do a lot of scoring. And so I thought from Sacramento's perspective, they were their approach was right. I mean, we'll see what Sabonis does in future games. The Warriors have enough to frustrate him, and I think that they were they kind of made him a focal point in their scouting report. And I think that stuff generally went well. Sabonis had 12 points and five of 17 from the field and four turnovers. Though he did have 16 rebounds, including some big offensive rebounds, offensive rebounds. He, and he they, looked a little shook late he uh, did. Uh, too. But, like he he uh, barely grazed the rim on two free throws. Yeah, and that had the crowd a grumble. There was also um I don't I don't have a, a snapshot perfectly in my head on that one of the weird parts of the last possession, like the last Warriors kind of true possession of the game. Not not the Curry runner, but the one before that where they got the ball and um and were and were basically Well, I'm not sure like, if you could see this on the broadcast, but uh after coming back down with it at a one-point game, Warriors had been down 5, they get the stuff step back three then fox makes one out of two on a what i consider a controversial call right after the warriors 
did a challenge of another call that I wasn't sure should be overturned, but it, Steph Curry with them in the bonus just kind of you know tried to hedge out, and I, I thought it could have just been a no call, like there wasn't a ton of contact there, like it wasn't like Fox was like trying to turn the corner, like it, it's the kind of contact you get on a lot of hedges, but that sent Fox to the line, he makes one out of two, and then Steph had a drive where I thought he probably got fouled. Fox missed a 17 footer, and then they get another offensive rebound. Fox misses another one, and then Draymond and Sabonis just got like tied up under the rim like Sabonis was trying for the offensive rebound he kind of like pulled Draymond down and then they did the whole like get tangled up as you're trying to stand up thing and so it was a four on four did they show that on tv that they did why those guys weren't in the play they did show it it was just the angle they were using at the beginning of the play but what I the thing that that's part of the snapshot that I would have is I know Sabonis ended up with that rebound he he got it and then Gary Payton was kind of near there but Sabonis got it I don't recall how involved Draymond ended up being in the play it seemed to me like Sabonis beat Draymond down the floor yeah but I think it it was four on four for most of the possessions. Some sure. people were saying Kerr should have called timeout. I think with the four on four, you go for it. And some people are like, hey, like Andrew Wiggins, wide open corner three. Like he should have driven it. Like, no, he was wide open. That's the shot that guys practice all the time. Like Andrew Wiggins, I think last year was like high 40s on that left corner three. And um, yeah, you're only down one. But it also like the Kings are going to get another possession. Like it does help to have that extra point. Like that's not useless. And there were and, also like four yeah. dudes around the basket. So like, were yeah. any of them in great position to stop him? Not not really, but it's still like you have a wide open corner three and all day to shoot it. Like, I think that's a completely reasonable decision to just take that shot. Yeah. And then Sabonis gets the rebound. Great rebound. He beats Gary Payton to it. Gary Payton goes down. Gary Payton didn't realize what was going on. He probably should have like tried to follow him from the ground. He eventually like sort of tried to do it, but he was doing like this like really light tap as Sabonis was throwing the pass all the way down the floor. So they, they could have saved a lot of time there and gotten Sabonis on the line rather than it ended up being Monk who made two free throws and then they uh, got Steph Curry that runner they dummied like well play they run all the time which is like Clay basically getting a flare screen uh, to uh, go weak side along the arc and then they got Steph inside and said I even missed the pass into Steph because like oh wow look at this dummy action for Clay that's like what they usually like to run and stuff they got a pretty good look like he can make that one footer but obviously uh it missed um but I think ultimately the Warriors offense looked pretty good in the first half they just didn't make threes I think in the second half is especially the last after Steph goes out the first time and their shot chart in the fourth quarter was crazy in the fourth quarter the Golden State Warriors took 19 threes and five twos they they made four of the five twos and also as you would as you would expect given that sort of a shot chart actually they did get to the line seven times um I was thinking it was I thought it was a few I thought it was five um and yeah pool had it pool had a few early in the quarter did. that kept them at least like semi in contact and so I mean that is a that is a wild shot distribution to have have 19 threes and five twos and, and some of those were open and many of those were their best shooters clay and Steph took 10 of those 19 but that also means that non-clay and Steph and Poole only took two so that means non-clay Steph Poole took seven and they missed all but one of those seven yeah not not amazing and I'll, again I'll credit the Kings I'll credit Sabonis when he was involved moved his feet pretty well to prevent immediate penetration but the Warriors ball movement was good enough and I think also just playing Looney and Draymond together and also the fact that Clay Thompson was like really thirsty on some of these shots uh, as well they just like against a team that has no rim protection the fact that they didn't take it to the paint that often uh, 
I thought was was pretty disappointing. And, and, and when they the did, they often got good things. It just they yeah. you know, they just didn't do it consistently enough. A couple other just individual player notes before we talk kind of about what this all means and where the series is going from here. Yeah, Keegan Murray just you know missed his three three pointers. If he had made that, maybe we could have played more. I do think that he wasn't making shots, but subbing Monk in for him in the closing group like that makes it even more egregious that Golden State wasn't able to get anything going to the basket. I will say the Kings like they did a good job of not miscommunicating like i don't think they gave up more than maybe like a couple of back doors uh jordan where, whereas the warriors cred- yeah, the warriors ahead. miscommunicated and transitioned a bunch of times yeah uh i think uh jordan Poole played 22 minutes that's like about right for him 17 points negative five and they tried to keep one of clay or steph out there with him at all times hilariously anytime davion mitchell was matched up against him jordan Poole is just like eh someone else you just dribble the ball up <laughs> which is actually probably a good idea Poole uh, again had a couple other ugly turnovers he did get to the foul line some early in the fourth and also sprained his ankle on on one of those drives and he's actually he's one thing i will give him a ton of credit for like he doesn't really play that tough in terms of the physicality of his game and like how strong he is with the ball but he does play through injuries a lot like his he has had a number of times where he's suffered an ankle sprain that looked pretty bad and he's been able to continue <clears throat> but of course you know he got attacked a fair amount by fox and fox did play 40 minutes so there isn't that much opportunity here but i try to keep him away from fox some if i can and then and Kaminga, 10 minutes, maybe someone who could play a little bit more like he did miss both of his threes. He did have a couple of turnovers. I thought his individual defense on Fox was actually pretty decent just to give him like a little bit more size. If they feel like they can't play Peyton more than 20 minutes, maybe they could give Kaminga a little bit of Looney's 32 minutes. But Sabonis, you mentioned the five out of 17 from him. And hilariously, I think he had like a couple of offensive rebound tip-ins. I don't know that he scored more than two buckets on like actual like post moves himself. And both of those were actually with the right hand, <laughs> hilariously. Uh, but, you know, that Looney and Draymond did a pretty good job of not getting knocked backwards. And then the other thing they were doing, of course, was laying so far back in the handoffs. And I think he kind of didn't really know what to do with that because most teams are so concerned about the shooters that they'll have the big up and pressure him. Now, Draymond did pressure him some too, but mostly they were just waiting way back and saying, hey, like, if you want to dribble into us and try and score, go for it. And hey, if you want to take a jumper, really go for it. He missed three of them and never really tried to do that again. So I did think they were kind of in his head by the end. I'll also say that for the first 42 minutes of the game, I think the whistle really favored the Warriors. We've talked about this many times throughout their playoff runs that they are going to let teams get shots at the rim and they are going to try to contest and Draymond and Looney and then, you know, some of the other guys who can come over to, like if they're not getting called for fouls there and just forcing misses, that's huge. But then the Warriors were completely inefficient in transition. The You want to know what the Warriors' offensive rating is in transition? Have you looked at it? I had already looked at it, yeah. Well, why don't, why don't you enlighten it? Because it's uh, pretty remar- remarkable how bad it was. Their offensive rating in transition was 69.2, including a zero offensive rating on their seven steals. That's pretty pretty incredible. And, and they've actually have not been very efficient in transition this year even though they play at a pretty fast pace and i'm not sure exactly why that is I and mean, it could just be 
bad luck on three pointers in transition, but yeah, that that is pretty interesting. Oh, I okay. One, how I, about where? Yeah, I have one go more, ahead. I wanna, just one more yeah. piece of novelty with this game. This oh, good, was, good. Her, this was Harrison Barnes' first playoff game since Game Seven in 2016. That is kind of incredible when you think about how many high impact playoff games he played in the first stretch of his career. He actually had a couple of huge shots late. Uh, he also had three steals early. I thought he really helped them set the tone a little bit. Played 36 minutes, and, and he had those four offensive rebounds also. They did have Steph guarding him a lot of the time. And one time he tried to take Steph, and Draymond saw it and got him trapped under the backboard. Like Barnes probably should have tried to make a pass there. But, you know, that's maybe something they can explore a little bit more. Yeah, like just you're not necessarily doing it to get a bucket for Barnes. You're doing it to generate a reaction. And you use that reaction to get a good look. Yeah, the problem is Barnes can't pass at all. That's that's a little bit issue. So and they also kind of, I mean, it is interesting. They don't really involve him in kind of their handoff game that much. He's really been used more of a spot-up guy. He hit one huge three uh, coming off a handoff, though, in the fourth. Part of that 8-for-11 run that the Kings had. So, obviously, the 17 offensive rebounds for Sacramento is something that Golden State is going to emphasize. We have to keep that up. And I did think that Golden State, and you know, Sabonis, good offensive rebounder, He's always going to be around the rim. Uh, I think if you do go a little bit smaller, like I think the disappointing thing is that even the green loony units didn't rebound very well hopefully if Wiggins Wiggins only had one defensive rebound that's probably the biggest thing that uh, he, they're gonna get on him about they're all happy to have him back and stuff and I thought he looked great athletically which we'll talk more about in a second but uh so let hope oh, that's something obviously Golden State's gonna have to clean up but I think they didn't do as much of the like okay all you need to do is just tip the ball a little bit away from the guy and I'll also credit the Kings like they the Warriors aren't maybe the same transition team and so they had if the ball did get tipped away they had two two guys sometimes even three just in the area if it got tipped around a little bit to go grab it and, and, the, and the kings are also yeah. just physically faster so they can take some of those gambles without sacrificing that much sure and so and that's part of why the kings had 18 assists on 44 field goals and golden state had 31 on 43 i don't know that that's necessarily how the kings want to play i mean it really was a lot of isolation but a lot of it was just darren fox and malik monk just getting the rim and of course the kings shot 32 free throws in the end as well and that's you don't get an assist on a free throw but the the isolation game was a lot more prevalent the oh is this right yeah sacramento had 14 isolations although interestingly they only were forced to pass on two isolations that led to shots so golden state clearly decided they were going to play deer and fox one-on-one and no that that probably didn't work we'll see if they change that up and then pick and roll ball handler sacramento much more there as well 27 possessions to 17 for golden state so just a lot of the stuff with sacramento was self-created and maybe you can say you know golden state great job they took this whole handoff game out of commission demonis sabonis only had two assists you know he's averaging in the like seven or eight assists and so that's we really took them out of their offense and we want to make them go one-on-one that's what we did and you know we can live with the results on that what do you think of that the the idea that maybe golden state kind of executed a little bit more than maybe they'll get credit for if you look at sabonis and herders lines i think you can see can see some of that but i think they underestimated what they would concede by what they were trying to take away and you know yeah Yeah, i I think you're right i think that herder and sabonis were kind of like the key guys that they were more focused in on so if you change that up are you concerned that those guys get going obviously that's that's the nature of defense i do think they're a little they were a little concerned with herder early on they had some miscommunications gave up some stuff at the rim but 
like they, they largely cleaned that up. It'd be interesting to see, you know, the Kings do have a lot of guys who can get off it in various ways. Like that's one of the things about them. That's interesting. Like Murray can, can do more, obviously, you know, Monk was good today, but uh, Lyles was good today, but Barnes and Herter didn't do much and neither did Sabonis. So they have a lot of different threats. That's why they're such a good offense. So I'm not sure that Golden State can do much better defending them than they have other than the offensive rebounds and not fouling as much but if they are going to have a different strategy where they're going to react more to monk or put two on the ball against fox or or monk or have the big further up they they're more likely to give up back doors they're more likely to give up stuff on the weak side for threes so uh, there is going to be a reaction there i thought it was pretty interesting even that fox like really wanted to go at draymond green and get his mid-ranger off against draymond green he, he attacked him once and scored and then another time he actually like didn't want herder to come up and set the screen to bring, bring curry into it but he ended up getting that that blocking following curry so yeah that that's a fascinating how much golden state wants to change up obviously they're gonna have to have something in their back pocket maybe give fox and monk some some different looks they'll probably also say well you know monk's not gonna play as well i think also just if you're gonna go to this strategy that they had you just gotta have better individual defense on on monk and fox and part of that is playing peyton more wiggins maybe playing more maybe more kaminga uh and but then you play looney less and now it's easier for sabonis to to go to work too and they didn't do hardly any switching at all really to let Sabonis get like inside position and post-ups as well so that's uh, at least like switching with the bigs they did more with uh with the perimeter guys so there's I mean, this Kings offense is really good I think it's really more that Golden State just has to outscore them and do just enough defensively I agree with that general conceit any other like uh, adjustments personnel wise or scheme wise that pops out to you at all no, we've talked about this game forever. This is a this is a fascinating basketball game. So I really it was. Enjoyed talking uh, about it. I mean, th- when Wiggins can transition the starting lineup, but I think f- one key part for me is just playing it. Playing one of your capable defensive perimeter players at all times, you know, like they have Kuminga, Wiggins, and Peyton now, and starting to me, starting Curry, Thompson, DiVincenzo, it's I'm not going to go to extreme to say it's untenable. I'm saying it's unnecessary, and you could try something else there. Yeah, DiVincenzo has disappointed me in his defense with the Warriors like he had a reputation of being like really an elite guard defender like obviously he's not going to guard like small forward types but the fact that like he just gets cooked by Fox one-on-one you know that's kind of that's kind of disappointing what's your conception of the series going forward the Kings I I liked the preview that you and Dan did like the Kings can absolutely win any single game in the series they can win the whole the whole series as well and this will be the first time I get to mention it Nate you know I say this a lot in every playoffs but for a, a lower seed an inferior seed if you don't win one of the first two games, you have to win four out of five. And yes, three of those five will be at home, but that's only three out of five. And for the Warriors, that that would be a tough road, even if even if you get to sleep in your own bed every night and, you, and you're, you're facing a team that you know very well. And so I think that Sacramento getting this win is, is really big because that it, it decreases the pressure, even if winning game two is still very important. And they have the firepower to win any game in this series. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if they won game two. Yeah, and obviously goal. Golden State can win a game five or a game seven on the road, but I've always said if you really want to feel good about winning a series as the road team, you got to be up three one. So yeah, game two is pretty much a much must much a must win for Golden State. I did think they outplayed the Kings throughout most of the game. 
and the Kings junked it up a little bit. Like they were they were better defensively than I thought they would be. I think part of that was just the Warriors getting a little thirsty and just not really working hard enough for shots, quite frankly, and being a little flummoxed by some of the zone stuff. So I mean that's that's all you can do is Mike Brown is just try to junk it up a little bit. I don't feel much differently in my conception of any individual game in this series going forward, like the likelihood of either Tim winning any individual game going forward in the series, but because the Kings have won the first one, some might say, well, hey, the Kings, these playoff ingenues and the crowd's going to go crazy, but then they could get tight. And like, you know, maybe the Warriors, there's a scenario where the Warriors could just really just show them who's boss in game one and they would never get any confidence in the series. So that's all now all off the table, right? And so that's that's big. Uh, and in addition to the fact that they've just have banked one and this is I mean, it's very rare that the road team is going to win in five. So this basically the Kings ensured this is going at least six at this point you would have to say and so that's uh that's big you know they they're they're gonna compete in this series we know that for sure now with this win and yeah they absolutely can win i mean this is a, a pretty close to a must must win for the warriors i mean yeah maybe if you're favored you're the favorite and you have all this talent and you're really good at chasing and all that like that's a reason to think that an o2 deficit isn't the same as it is for in a lot of series but it's still still pretty daunting we got another day of NBA action, so it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus Trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Cleveland and New York, man, what an absolute fucking rock fight of a game this is. And I, surely Tom Thibodeau must have just been loving every second of it. I was struck during the first quarter of this game by something that comes up a fair amount in the regular season, which is that in the regular season, Tom Thibodeau does a great job. His teams are more prepared for their opponents than the average team. Like they have some specific stuff that they're looking for. They have some some tactics. And I thought that by and large over the course of this game, it's not necessarily the reason they won, but by and large, the Knicks did a really good job articulating what they could do to stymie the Cavs, particularly in half court offense, and execute it. You know, you they have these four really, really good players, and you devote some of your resources to slowing those guys down. And inevitably, some of them are going to have big games. And this one that was done for Mitchell, who of course we'll talk about. But you there is always somebody that is a more willing sacrifice. And whether that be that they're you can attack them on defense, you can attack them on offense, or in some cases both. And I thought that really set a tone. The Knicks went out to a 30-24 lead. And then the other thing, which has been true, especially during this huge run in the second half of the year for the Knicks, is taking some of the other advantages. They were excellent in transition this game. They had 
21.5% transition frequency. They weren't in the half court very often. They had a terrible half court offensive rating, but they were able to survive it. And so you take those general philosophical notes and you take the things that the Knicks did well, and they gave themselves a good chance to win despite shooting eight of 29 from three. I want to go back to something you said at the beginning, which was there were certain, they're really locked in on certain things that they wanted to do a certain personnel. Like what stands out to you there? Not caring at all about what Isaac Okoro did. Not, you know, like, I mean, one of the ones that struck me, I mean, and there was also like Dean Wade was passing up shots. He was only in for seven minutes. And those seven minutes went really badly for the Cavs. I don't think all of that is Dean Wade. But one of the ones that was really interesting to me, um, they only did it for a few minutes, was the Cavs were playing Ricky Rubio alongside Darius Garland. Garland played 43 minutes in this game. Mitchell played 44. And the problem with that alignment, which the Cavs went to a fair amount with some success in in a prior year, is Darius Garland is a very capable off-ball player. He's a good, he can move well, he could shoot well, but Garland is also so good offensively now that you don't really want the ball out of his hands. And so whenever Rubio was on the floor, or they did this to an extent with Levert too, who had an abysmal game, um, was okay, if Ricky Rubio's in the game and Ricky, the ball is not in Ricky Rubio's hands, then we don't care that he exists. And that gives you a rover. That gives you somebody that can make things a lot harder. And I thought that the Knicks did that extremely well. Yeah, the auditions for the Cavs' fifth Beatle. Uh, sh- let's let's say they're uh, they're ongoing. They're 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 <laughs> they're going about as well as the drummer for Spinal Tap at this point. Is uh, is Pete Best available? I, I realized he was one of the four Beatles initially, but you know whatever. I don't know who else would have actually been in the Beatles as as an actual fifth Beatle historically. So you'll have to just deal with the my analogy there. But yeah, I think there were just. I mean, the biggest thing that stood out to me is this was just an absolutely heroic game from Donovan Mitchell. He did just everything that you possibly could. 44 minutes, 38 points, 14 to 30 from the field, 6 of 16 from three. All of them just really difficult, just about off the dribble looks. Eight assists, three steals, a block. Like he, Jalen Brunson tried to go at him as the, the Cavs surged back and even took a brief lead in the fourth. He got a couple of steals and, and runouts. Like just his energy level was awesome. Like you just, you can't possibly ask for anything more out of your superstar, particularly just because the way he just had to fucking grind and grind and grind and just, I mean, the Cavs offense is just so bad. It's so bad other than Mitchell and Garland. And part of that's the, the personal, I'll credit the Knicks strategy again. I mean, the, the Okoro, Rubio, Lavert and Dean Wade. I mean, those are those are four of the the five non-big four guys. They all were awful. They finally went to Jetty Osmond, but that meant that Jetty Osmond had to guard Jalen Brunson at the end of the game, which he actually did a semi-credible job on. Uh, and I mean, the, they got lucky that the Knicks only shot eight out of twenty-nine from three, and they still lost. I mean, they should have lost by more. I would say in this game. The other thing that struck me is you know as good as Evan Mobley is defensively, he's made and he's made some strides as an offensive player and you know he could pass some out out of the from the free throw line area and he, he's probably more quote-unquote skilled than your average power forward he's not an above average offensive power forward i thought this game kind of made that clear because the Knicks strategy no matter who was setting the screen for donovan mitchell they're going to put two on the ball but they're going to do it with julius randall and they're going to say hey 
Evan Mobley, you want to try and beat us with a foul line jumper? Go for it. You want to try to attack the rim against Mitchell Robinson? Go for it. Well, Evan Mobley shot four out of 13. And, oh, you want to th- try and, like, make a pass? Well, we're not really going to help that much off that guy. Or if it'll be Isaac Okoro, just leave him, like, completely wide open at Isaac Okoro. Go one for six, oh, four from three in 23 minutes. But unless you are just, like, an unbelievable offensive player, like, you know, a Zion and, and even, like, Julius Randle, right? Like, he shot 10 three-pointers in this game. He made three, but he but he took 10, and that was, that was big for the Knicks' offense. The difference in spacing between what the Knicks had and what the Cavs had was, like, just enough. Like, they're, they're Brunson as an isolationist and, you know, Randle every now and again and some of the offensive rebounds that they're able to get. Like, it's being able to space the floor at that four position is so important. And because the Cavaliers could not make them pay for putting two on the ball and pick and roll against Garland and Donovan Mitchell. Like, that's a problem. Like, if you can't do anything about a double team 25 feet from the basket, you're not a good offense. I don't care if they were the number seven offense this year. It was really remarkable over the course of this game, just how the the alternate strategies just weren't working. And it, and it yeah, I mean, some of that was, you know, Mobley not being able to take advantage. I mean, and it, there were a lot of different things. I mean, as you said, Donovan Mitchell was phenomenal overall in this game. And I thought the the other thing, and the, the transition ties in with this, but just the overall kind of like effort level, and we'll accept some calves from this, but like Josh Hart, top of had some great runs in transition. Hartenstein and Mitchell Robinson battling on the offensive glass. Hart had five offensive rebounds himself. And yeah, I I thought a lot of the offensive rebounds it wasn't until the last one that Randall got where he just completely out toughed Mobley. Oh, that was but impressive. I thought I thought most of them were loose ball and they just run it down. Like I thought they just were able to out hustle. Yeah, it was more like the ones that PJ Tucker had in the first game of the day. Yeah, and when the Cavs Big Four are playing forty three minutes for Allen, thirty eight for Mobley, forty three Garland, forty four Mitchell, Josh Hart coming in playing thirty three minutes. Like Hartenstein coming in playing 22 minutes, Obi Toppin 14 minutes. Like those guys were able to give them good time. And Hartenstein is plus 19. Like all the Knicks bench guys were in the plus in part because they weren't RJ Barrett. Uh, they, those guys are just a little bit fresher. They're able to play a little bit harder. I mean, th- those Cavs guys, they gave everything they could. Like I don't necessarily fault them, but like the Knicks just had more usable depth. They did. And that is definitely a concern for the Cavs as the series moves forward. And I brought, I mean, the, the fifth Beatle auditions went poorly i don't know you could make a credible argument for a number of different guys of who it went most poorly for but the one that was most jarring to me was karis lavert where like lavert just had some truly terrible drives like kind of getting in nowhere one of the few karis lavert drives that actually worked out uh i I wish i remember which nick it was i don't think it was josh hart but somebody helped off of darius garland when karis lavert drove to the nail and was just doing nothing and they got an open three out of it but lavert he had nothing going on offense his defense was wasn't at that level and you compare that to the Knicks guys who everyone came in they didn't necessarily hit all of their shots you know Manuel quickly was 0 for 5 but he was still helping his team he was still providing an impetus in transition he was still battling on defense and same kind of story yeah, with he's still and he's gonna get guarded too. yes and he's going to get guarded. And so that is a, hu- a huge problem for the Cavs. Another huge problem for the Cavs, and this is one of the bigger takeaways for me from the game, is that Julius Randle looked very good physically. Wondered what he was going to look like in the beginning of the series. He was 19 points, 7 to 20 from the field, but he forced a couple. And I, But I thought he overall, he looked more like yeah, himself he- than I expected. 
he had 12 points in the first quarter. Uh, a few of those were on the fast break. He hit, hit a pretty difficult three early on. Like I, I did think eventually, you know, he finished seven to 20, like mo- him trying to go one-on-one on Mobley. I still don't think that's like some huge advantage matchup, but yeah, physically you couldn't really tell he was injured. I thought he was, he was good in their aggressive pick and roll coverage as well. Like he didn't really get beaten there too much. And then on top of that, it was so weird. I hadn't even thought about this element of the series, but Jalen Brunson and Donovan Mitchell facing off again, both in different uniforms after last year. And I thought Brunson did a great job overall picking his spots and using his advantages. And I mean, at times that was driving on Jetty Osmond because Osmond was the guy who was guarding him. But Brunson made basically zero mistakes out there other than a few, a little bit too aggressive shots. He didn't turn the ball over. And yeah, he got when Mitchell was like really going off and like the Cavs took that brief lead. I think it was 91-90 that I thought Brunson got a little bit aggressive trying to go back at him but overall i thought he did a really nice job and kind of kept things kept things under wraps and so they you know getting a good game from him getting a big game from josh hart 17 and 10 in 33 minutes plus five and i I, you know we'll we'll talk about the exception to it but i thought the knicks overall played extremely well yeah and and another way the Cavs kind of looked out in this one was brunson getting in early quote-unquote foul trouble right uh only played 30 minutes in the end of finish of course with with three fouls now sure. you might you might say that they because they're going to go after him some with mitchell that it was good to keep him out of foul trouble but you know and they have a capable backup and quickly and, so and brunson was also more fresh the for the end of the game and he had to he had to do right. some work at the end no that's true but i think they they could have been a little bit more aggressive with them with, with the foul trouble but uh yeah so you might say well would they consider playing danny green you know maybe you even play danny green at like I would consider maybe playing him at backup four, uh, although him trying to guard Randall might be difficult. I think putting him in against Toppin is fine uh, just to get to really space the floor, get some shooting. Unfortunately, this version of Danny Green can't guard Jalen Brunson. And like even Jetty Austin, who again, I thought he did a pretty credible job uh, just like trying to contain. And then Brunson did beat him late for like a, a layup off an offensive rebound when Osmond had just gone through this like Herculean effort to like slide his feet for an entire possession, get a stop, they get an offensive rebound. You could tell he was tired and Brunson just blew right by him for a, an easy layup. That was one of the key bu- buckets down the end. But, you know, I think Osmond was able to like back off, use his size a little bit. It wasn't like a just, uh, I think Brunson found something when he just said all right i'm just gonna go fast and go past it i thought osmond kind of did a good job not falling for the fakes containing and then just kind of trying to get a contest and you know he actually made two three-pointers in the game which is two more than any cavalier not named garland or mitchell made in this game danny it was a part of what made this game such a ridiculous rock fight was that neither team could make a three and so the knicks overall were eight of 29 the Cavs overall were 10 of 31 but yeah six of those 16 were six of 16 for donovan mitchell which means rest of team four of 15 not great yeah again i mean i get back to the the fact that like you know okoro i mean these are guys who are getting like batting practice three-pointers whenever they want them on the back side of the, some of these pick and rolls so they should be like wade was 0 for one he passed up a shot okoro was passing up shots by the end i mean and again like okoro all four of his three-point attempts were wide open in the corner and he had a couple of cuts to he had one field goal got a couple of free throws and assists 
but again, it was definitely a problem and they would love to be able to put a core on Jalen Brunson, but they just couldn't score. And so they had to go to Jetty Osman. Uh, so they, I mean, they wanted to bring in Dean Wade because they felt like they played him at four rather than three. He was the backup four. Yeah, I was really poor. He was negative 14. He passed up the shot. I thought he just didn't have enough effort on the boards and they didn't want to go with Lamar Stevens because Lamar Stevens, you know, shoots like 25% on corner threes as the four man, but maybe it's just, it's not like any other guys are making anything. Anyway, maybe they'll consider him and just try like Stevens will go out there and he'll like scrap and he'll run down those loose ball rebounds. Like they don't really have anyone else who's going to do that type of stuff. So that's maybe that's a feeling that he's going to come out there and he's going to just raise their effort level overall. But of course he, he's quite a, a flawed player. Let me see if I got anything else here. Anything else that stuck out to you? Not the greatest RJ Barrett game. Uh, two, yeah, go ahead. Two, two of 12 from the field, one of five from three. And there were plenty of moments where just like, well, what do you really do here? And it was an, it was an argument that like, I, I've thought that RJ Barrett's defense has been overrated in certain elements of the basketball community over the years. Like he's not a huge reason why they've been successful when they've been successful and offensively Barrett can be an adept passer but he doesn't create enough advantages and when he doesn't have the ball in his hands he's more of a liability and so I I thought Josh Hart was significantly better than him overall in this contest and played more minutes and justifiably so yeah definitely and I think I'd I'd like to see even Grimes uh, before him as well due to Grimes superior shooting and I don't think he's any worse defensively and frankly like having Barrett on the second unit isn't all bad like the Cavs don't actually have anyone to guard him and i would really like barrett to be in there when the knicks are going against units that don't include both of mobley and allen because then he actually can kind of play that power game work into the lane against some of these smaller guards they don't really have someone who's physically in a matchup with them so it, it would make sense to try to get something out of him bring him off the bench he did have four steals and six assists which i'll credit him for so like, i don't think he was bad in the floor game no but i agree and i thought he missed some shots in the lane that were makeable for him so i think i think he'll play better going forward but yeah and and Hart, his effort-based game like he i don't know if i want him playing so many more than 33 minutes you know maybe it's quickly who could play a little bit more but i think the knicks were pleased with the size that they had so i i think it was it, randall was definitely on a minutes restriction like he had to go out much earlier than normally he played 34 which ended up being the most on the knicks but i think actually like the depth and a lot of these guys are like relatively similar quality so to be able to kind of just sprinkle the minutes around with all of them and nobody plays more than 34 minutes i'm sure randall will play more next game but that's i think you know the knicks got 43 percent offensive rebounds and that's part of how they were able to, to do that i thought it was pretty hilarious that at one point in the fourth quarter tom thibodeau had four timeouts remaining and jb bickerstaff had one <laughs> when's the last time he had he went in with that that moment and, and i think jb was just his guys were exhausted you think he had to just use them to get his guys rest uh josh hart had a ridiculous off the dribble three-pointer to beat the shot clock against jetty osman which has not exactly been his forte but you know he used to make those for the lakers in summer league uh, summer league mvp Uh, baby yeah that's right that's right i thought it was interesting you mentioned the garland rubio lineups that they would rather still have darius garland guard jalen brunson in those matchups like the rubio's man went to screen and they actually just like hedged with rubio they wouldn't even switch that that was kind of surprising to me i mean i think you know, rubio is not I mean, maybe he's a little bit older they just don't feel like he can guard him but like is he can't do as good or better of a job than darius garland being having a, a lot of size advantage i mean rubio again it's just it's tough man 
to have him out there. He's uh, negative nine in six minutes. Those uh, second quarter minutes were real bad for the Cavs. Yeah, I think the Knicks just their overall just made it really difficult for Cleveland. And some of the weaknesses of this Knicks team and some of the weaknesses, I think, even of Tom Thibodeau as a coach, we'll see whether the Cavs can exploit that. Like, I was very worried about the Knicks playing drop coverage defensively, but they didn't do that. Instead, they went to more aggressive pick and roll coverage and the Cavs couldn't do anything with that. I do think that a couple of adjustments that I would have, I think they need to have Jared Allen setting that screen more often. Like, have Mitchell Robinson be the one out on the floor and yeah I realized that maybe Jared Allen isn't quite the guy that Evan Mobley is in theory making plays but it's not like Mobley was like shooting some great free throw line jumper and the big problem for Mobley was he would get in a two-on-one he and Jared Allen and Mitchell Robinson or Hardenstein would just be standing under the rim and so there wasn't really space to make the pass to Allen and then Mobley would try to go in and the, he would just miss the shot a good contest by the the Knicks protecting the rim and then obviously there wasn't you know they could kind of crash in and crack down on Allen a little bit and the corner three-point shooter wouldn't be able to do anything but I think you know a few other things they might consider is you know pick and roll get two on the ball and then let's swing it quickly and let the other guard attack out of that as the defense tries to recover or short the pick and roll and then try to get the guy on the move instead of you know trying to get that pocket pass or lobbing it up um i think also just more movement along the baseline from whoever isn't the guy setting the screen when the two bigs are together is really important i might even consider i mean i've always said teams should do this and try it and no one ever does like because they're like oh the dunker spot that's where you're supposed to be i think honestly like having someone like jared allen be just a few a few steps off the baseline so that then you almost can create a like two on one both guys going towards the rim a little bit better of a passing angle as opposed to just the guy just standing there along the baseline and it's just it's easier to defend that two on one than if one guy drives in then the other guy is also kind of cutting to the rim as well so that's that's something to consider but they got to figure out a way to make the Knicks pay for putting two on the ball at the three-point line like if they can't do that they're gonna lose the series and they might it might not take them that many games to lose it too like I, I i didn't make picks for the series i i like a lot of what the Cavs do but the the thing that they could take some solace in is this was still a close game in part because the Knicks were eight of 29 from three despite none of their fifth beatles playing well but how much better do you expect those guys to go yes the shots can fall in a given game like lavert can do better than one for seven but you're not going to change fundamentally change things too much and mitchell was electric during a lot of it yeah the Cavs also i mean they'll they'll shoot better like they were two of 15 in the upper paint like that's that's really rough and granted part of that is mitchell robinson doing a good job some of it i mean they're gonna make a few more of those you would think but and obviously you favor the Cavs to win game two like this is the ultimate yo-yo effect game the team loses game one going coming out and just and especially when the other team played our when's the next game in this series they have one day off or two two days off it's on tuesday okay that's a big deal and that's a so it's not as big of a deal that JB had to go so hard on the minutes with these guys. But yeah, I think like Cleveland could do better in the effort categories. Evan Mobley is, I think, could play at least somewhat better offensively than he did. And they did a lot of good things defensively as well. I would say if they can just clean up the glass, like they should be all right. But I mean, the the downside is like, how much more can you expect from Donovan Mitchell? Like now I think they should probably try to run more through Darius Garland and then try to find Mitchell on the second side would be my thought. Garland only 13 shot attempts they only had one assist and yeah when they're putting two on the ball it's a little bit more difficult but i think having mitchell working more off the ball hopefully make his life a little bit easier and then maybe you can set a second screen over there or, or 
and but the the Cavs unfortunately with the nature of their offense with basically just like two guards and two bigs they don't have a lot of like creative ways to attack you like they want to just set a pick and roll that's <laughs> that's what they're gonna do it and, and so they they don't really have a ton of diversity to their game they don't like throw it in the post and do split cuts or or they're not a great fast break team so I mean I think that I think this is gonna be a long series I didn't I, I like the Cavs more than some I picked it in six I'm not ready to totally get off of that feeling that cleveland is a better team but congrats to the knicks uh, winning this first one anything else you have no that's that's pretty much all i have so we can move to the first game of the day because this the second game of the day we could talk about very briskly and that's brooklyn philly and particularly during the first let's call it two and a half quarters of this game and this, maybe you could extend it to the third what concerned me a fair amount if you know if i were a brooklyn partisan is that a lot of things went well for them you know like offensively mikhail bridges was phenomenal during long stretches this game ended up with 30 points on 18 shots in the field 20 shooting possessions and they made their threes overall 13 to 29 and while joel Embiid ended up with a good game he didn't like smash 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 them and i didn't know he had a triple double fine yeah joel um 20 26 points five rebounds three assists um but they still were getting absolutely handled by by the sixers and i want to start with something um there are a couple things in the early part of this game you and i were were chatting a little bit um though we we obviously weren't together and i thought in the first quarter in particular the nets did a nice job with something that i had highlighted in the series and had i done the previous we would talk about this and that's make james harden a driver and i thought in the first quarter they did a really good job of that harden took seven shots from the field or sorry six which is no it was seven seven which is a lot for him five in the paint two threes and he only made one of those five now that exaggerates things a little bit and and he could do better than that um and then they kind of that kind of fell by the wayside over the course of the game then he started getting more comfortable with the step back hit some really hard ones and Harden eventually had 23 points on 21 shots in field did not get to the free throw line at all and they went and then so so I thought that was can I just quickly on on his shooting this is wild seven of 13 from three one of eight from two mm-hmm. and he had five three-pointers in the second quarter one of eight from uh, two, actually was what, five of those eight I'm in sorry? the first quarter uh in the first first quarter he only took three oh, oh, he only oh, took the, three oh the missed twos yeah okay okay yeah, yeah he yeah. only took three twos in in the last three quarters of the game and it, the the three-pointers were of an interesting variety three of them were like old school james harden like really difficult setbacks i thought two of them were nice just like off ball step into it catch and shoots which looked pretty good and also at 13 assists he had a really good game only four turnovers and uh, i mean that was one of the biggest problem for the nets is that the sixers only had eight turnovers despite the fact that they were double teaming joel Embiid. but uh i don't know i i I have some thoughts here but i want to let you you finish uh the point you want oh no that i think i think we've distilled that pretty much and we should probably go to how the nets defended Embiid. i think that's probably well well yeah so so i I mean your larger point though about yeah through a lot of this game it seemed like the nets were playing pretty well i agree with you i mean they ended up getting hit by like a true avalanche of threes late third early fourth and philly went up 20 and the game was over but and this part of this is how they defended and beat too like i actually i felt like they played they played pretty well and like i don't know whether the fact that they played pretty well and they lost by 20 should make me 
feel good or bad. I mean, Philly was 21 of 43 from downtown and they were like in the shooting in the fifties for most of the game. Uh, uh, obviously the nets shot very well themselves, right? They were seven, 11 for mid range bridges was five of six in the first half. Like he, he was awesome. We'll talk more about his game, but I mean, so should I, I and obviously the nets aren't going to win the series, but I, as someone who felt like they could be more competitive than a lot of people and picked it in six, should I be encouraged or discouraged by this performance? Moderately discouraged just because they gave it, they gave it a good shot and lost. Like it's, it, you, you know, it's, it's sort of the equivalent of that, you know, like you're, you're a, the, it's the reverse, but you're ahead, but the other team was like three of 10 from three and you're like, or three of 20 or whatever. And you're like, Oh, well that's going to be, it's like you want, you want, when you lose, you want it to have not been your best shot. You want there to be these obvious things that you can correct these, these elements there. If you, if the goal is a long series and when a team plays reasonably well, and yes, there's the three point regression in the mean, but there's three point regression in the mean from both of these squads and the nets got absolutely stomped overall in the possession game. You brought up the, the turnovers. So the yeah. turnovers was 19 to eight in favor of the Sixers, but it was also 14 to five in terms of offensive rebounds, 34% versus 18%. If you want to classify it that way, but yeah, I don't PJ Tucker had five yeah. where he just snuck along the baseline and like out hustled them. Like he was, I thought he was fantastic actually in this game. He also had five steals and and took six shots look at that six shots uh, yeah it, t- it made it was two of five from three all from the corner of course so i i think for me the if i were like a nets fan or somebody who was like kind of rooting for the series to go longer that that would be more concerning to me now the i i this I, every year there's at least one series that's like this and this is my theory as i was watching this game there's one series where every game is kind of hard fought but it's still a short series and so like this could be a i to me it's a i think this is gonna be a four or five game series but i wouldn't be surprised if most of the rest of the games are closer than this and they're just like the nets so, are battling yeah. through this game was all about joel and bead on both ends and it did i did think like the nets did as good a job as you can do dealing with them maybe with one exception on both ends and so let's start with the defensive end they did exactly what i suggested they should do i mean not not that i'm the only one who came up with this i think they even tried this during the regular season they did play with claxton on and bead somewhat but they also played smaller guys on it basically if they ever got caught in transition they're just like but we're fine with that and then they just switched everything uh, any Joel and bead pick and roll they're just going to switch it all right you want to throw it to him at the nail fine and they varied up their double team looks but they did always come with the double team in the end first they began with hard double teams particularly and i couldn't get enough of a feel of whether like what the rules were whether they're just like okay we're just gonna double team hard and now we're not double teaming hard nowhere because or it may have also been based on where he catches it uh i think it may have been the latter i'm not sure but when he would catch the ball in the mid post on the side they came with the double team immediately it's easier to double team there and it what they wouldn't go off the passer it would usually be the guy who was guarding like the second guard in the front who would come over and then so you're not giving up that first easy pass to the passer. You're forcing him to make a pass to the weak side. And then they scrambled out of that. Uh, and then when he caught the ball at the nail, it seemed like, from what I could tell, they waited until he put the ball on the floor and then they would try to bring someone down from the top to when he went to the spin move. Like, I think they even had a thought of like, okay, like we the goal is 
sell out to cut off that initial move, make him spin back, and then we'll have a double team there. But Joel handled it well, only had two turnovers, which when you're being double teamed on every catch, that's pretty impressive. And the Sixers had a ton of assists. I thought that they, you know, again, like yeah, they didn't give up a there's ton no to Joel, way, right? There's no easier way to make a team's ball movement active and look good than to double on the catch every single time. Now, I mean, Joel only, it was, he was 11-11 for the foul line, but didn't have a lot through most of the game. He was 7-15, like they did a good job making him see bodies. Uh, only had he had 26 points which is good but it was like it wasn't a dominant performance what really I thought the Sixers did a great job of not only making their three-pointers you know when Harris was three out of three but I thought he did a really nice job of he only had to play 29 minutes of attacking closeouts I, I thought that Niang did the same they had good overall energy as well from the likes of, of Jalen McDaniels coming off the bench so that that's but again like i think i mean this was a slower paced game so the offensive ratings were pretty damn high it ended up being 134 for philly like during what i would consider the competitive portion of the game it was like you know 140 for philly but brooklyn was in the 120s for a lot of the game too it was just a, a slower paced game and i do think there's some things brooklyn can clean up like they turning the ball over as much as they did like this is not like some high turnover forcing team like they Th- should this, be this was that. one of the worst lob throwing games i can recall yeah no that that's a great point and that's where I want to get to my next point where I thought Joel was in there are ways to attack him, but he was just in like a dead drop coverage in the first half. <laughs> like, it, was, it was hilarious. Yeah. And, and how, how did you feel like that went? I thought it went pretty well for the Sixers. I mean, the Nets were petrified whenever Embiid was in the game of trying to take anything around the basket. You could see them. It, it was the deterrence for me more than it was like shot blocks or anything else. Embiid did end up with two. And you that like in that first half, Brooklyn only took 10 shots in the restricted area, but off the cuff i think five of those 10 were in the few minutes that he sat and um yeah and a lot of the turnovers were on those lobs like everyone like rejoiced on twitter when they finally got one like midway through the third but i think the reason they turned it over so much was Embiid was just a step further back and so they felt like they needed to loft it too far over them and then they just lofted it over (laughs) the recipient of the pass as well uh but i mean that that coverage was a huge reason why mikhail bridges really got off in the first half and well, he did have one incredible lefty dunk, and I think that was when Embiid was out of the game. Or maybe, yeah, I think it was when Embiid was out of the game. Uh, Bridges was four or five for mid range, three or five upper paint, and I really was very impressed by his game. He had twenty three in the first half and just was flying off of screens, off the ball, got out some in transition, ran some traditional pick and roll, but he was able to turn the corner and Philly. And they're not really, you know, they don't have like the greatest off ball guys to guard him. It's Tobias Harris and Tobias Harris is uh, maybe in an ISO. He can do okay, but he's not going to like fly around screens with Mikhail Bridges, who's also like a tireless runner. And so Bridges was getting like pretty much a free run into the mid range to get pretty good shots. And then the Nets had enough shooting there that they couldn't really like pin, bring defense in from the wing to take that away. Uh, but ultimately the math wasn't working out well enough because I think the, the Nets didn't get up enough threes. They hit 12 out of 29. But if Joel is going to be hanging way back like that, you need to get more three pointers for someone like a Cam Johnson or a Seth Curry or, or even Bridges and make the math work that way as opposed to like getting to the foul on, uh, on some of these plays, which has been a Nets problem before they even had all these guys and they had Katie and Kyrie. I thought there were a couple times where Jacques Vaughn did some nice kind of like off-ball set stuff for Cam Johnson. Like 
there was there was one was a DFS just yeah. did nasty screen and they kind of threw it over the top on the side to Cam Johnson for a three, but there wasn't as much like yeah, work it in, try to get something within the flow. I, I wholeheartedly agree with you there. Yeah, and just setting off ball screens with Embiid's man for a three pointer. Right, you know, I think that's that, that's something the Hawks yeah. at times did well in the, in that series a couple of years ago. So the other thing that was and Jack Vaughn even talked about this in the first quarter interview was they tried to set a lot of staggered screens and have Maxi's man be the first guy in the stagger so that then Maxi would have to switch onto the ball handler and then he would get hit by the screen but Joel would still be in the drop coverage on that I would like to see more of just let's and they even had Maxi as the primary matchup on Dinwiddie a lot I'm just 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 go cook Kyrie's Maxi like we don't even need a screen like let's just space the floor out and and go for it and so that's something I think that I'd like to see him try. Uh, Darren Sharp was pretty good in this game. Like, I think he's he's really improved his body. Uh, I mean, this isn't a great series for him, but I thought he was decent enough against beat. Obviously, they protected him defensively with the double team. But like, I think he's a guy who's going to have a career. I think he's going to be heard from, you know, he's going to be at least like a backup center who will get a couple of contracts. Yeah, I like him. And I also thought this was a, a good game for B-ball Paul Reed. I'm sure oh, yeah. John Hollinger will be thrilled. He went between the legs once, but plus five in 13 minutes, 11 points, four rebounds had some good defensive plays as well aggressive forced a couple of turnovers i thought he played very well overall nets tried to go zone some when Embiid actually was off the floor and harden hit an immediate spot up three off a sideline out of bounds against that that was pretty good and the nets rim protection was very solid i mean the, the sixers did not shoot the ball well from two particularly the first half there were only 10 out of 26 in the paint eight of 18 at the rim so claxton sharp was pretty good some of their and also like harden is just not a great finisher like, you know, PJ Tucker, uh, when he tries to shoot around the rim, he only took one, but uh, he missed it. Even Embiid, if you don't follow him, like he will miss a few. So I, again, I was kind of like, yeah, the Nets like defense is not terrible if they just don't hit 21 three pointers. And it, also they can clean up the offensive glass, which I mean, Philly's not a great offensive rebounding team. Like if you just can control Tucker, you're probably fine there. Um, I'll credit the Sixers. They did change up on Bridges and that's part of why he only had seven points in the second half, only two points in the third quarter as the Sixers really made their run. They brought Joel Embiid much further up on the screen and uh, he was mobile enough to play that coverage pretty well. So I'll give them credit, Doc Rose credit for that adjustment at halftime. Maxi didn't really do much. They didn't need him to do much, but he's... I don't know if this is like a great series for him. Maybe it's a, more as a driver working off of the Embiid double teams. He mostly just, when he did get the ball there, he just took that three, which he can obviously make. He shot it well. Let's see if I got anything else here. I thought the McDaniels minutes were pretty solid for the Sixers, which is a yeah. good win. Like they get, you know, the question of who does Doc trust in the rotation? Melton is coming off the bench because they're starting Maxi and Harden together. And so it was primarily Niang, McDaniels, Reed, and Melton. I thought all four of those guys did well. Yeah, and he thoughts on like what's gonna happen here you thinking gentlemen sweep at this point yeah i i just the hard thing for me is is can brooklyn catch lightning in a bottle more than once kind of putting it together offensively and def- defensively they have players they have the scheme I, I like what Jacques vaughn did i think he he had a reasonable approach but the sixers are, are a superior team and like when you look at what the nets were after the trade that makes a lot of sense yeah you gotta say nba coaching's in a pretty good place i don't think anyone thinks of jock vaughn as like some unbelievable coach like i think he's been solid every chance he's gotten since orlando to be sure but the fact that hey we're gonna come out in game one and like this is our strategy it's this complex and 
you and, recognize and, this is what we're going to do. We're not going to say, oh, we're just going to put our center on Joel Embiid. And then when that center gets in foul trouble, we'll bring in our next center. And like, you know, there's not, there's just a lot more that that this is like your strategy in game one of a playoff series. Like that's impressive to me. I like that shows that NBA coaching is in a good place and credit the Sixers for beating that. But I think it was, I mean, that's the other thing is just the turnover battle. Like they got to force more turnovers. Like Harden and Embiid will turn it over. And then the Nets turning it over so many times themselves against a low turnover team against a team that's playing a drop coverage like that's that's not good enough. so if they if the nets can clean up the possession game like i think they can be competitive some in this series if they're going to lose the possession game to a team that isn't really normally that great at that then yeah they're even more fucked than they probably would be already speaking of even more fucked than we might have thought next the the uh Boston Celtics led the Atlanta Hawks 74-44 at halftime. I look forward to who the Boston Celtics face in the second round of the playoffs. Is it is it that reductive? You just think it's it's done? Uh, I think there are some things that are worth discussing from this game, including the absolute atrocity that was Trey Young for most of it. I mean, it was. I mean, so I'll give, I'll do the overall numbers. I, I don't have the splits handy, but five of eighteen from the field, eight assists, five turnovers, negative fourteen in thirty-five minutes of action, and it. You know, I, I the, they he was flummoxed, and it it's such a weird preliminary. I mean, Young will play better than he than he has than he did in this game. I I hope and expect. But you think about how the kind of the arc of this. So like plays well and they make a conference finals, though there were some some new some nuances, some warts to that. And then if this ends up being a disastrous series, you follow that up with last year's heat and then potentially, you know, at least a rough game one against the Celtic. Yeah, it does seem like he's going backwards a little bit, doesn't it? Um, and uh, particularly some of these rumors that came out before the playoffs. And yeah, I mean, I didn't think it was possible for Trey to play worse than he played it in last year's playoffs and uh, of course this game was a uh, an abject disaster for him missed his first six shots it finally hits one like very deep three but he had six misses and two turnovers before his first field goal uh, his defense wasn't the only or even necessarily the main problem early but obviously that uh, remained an issue with him guarding Derek White Ger- Derek White got off for 24 points seven assists and those weren't all at Trey's expense necessarily, but obviously anytime he got attacked, it was a, a five alarm fire for the Hawks. Like I, I do again, I think the Hawks are going to win a game in the series. Like I, I think they're going to be a little bit more competitive than this. Like they just, they clearly just came out not ready to play at all. And the Hawks did not go with Robert Williams and Al Horford. They instead started Derek White's. So they had the small lineup and that worked great. Jared Weiss was all over that in his preview. He thought they would go small. And the reason why it was immediately a parent because Clint Capella was just on a wanted poster guarding Al Horford like sticking to him like glue in the corner and it took until like mid second quarter before Al Horford hits his first three and I mean I think in the first quarter Boston got like probably six or seven layups it was a ton in the half court I'm sorry yeah I don't remember the exact number but it was a ton yeah in the half court we're talking about here just either back cuts quick slips to the room on a pick and roll or more often just somebody driving right by their man and there being absolutely no help at the rim and you might think okay like i mean it was very quite frankly it reminded me of the jazz teams that quinn satter coached uh, with rudy gobert and uh in the first half as they built that 74 to 44 lead the boston celtics were 15 of 19 at the rim in one half and then they missed a bunch of threes early and then they made i think five in a row to start the second and then the the rot was really on once they 
started hitting their threes as well. So, yeah, I mean, the Hawks' defense was just atrocious. Like, the bigs were nowhere to be found. Obviously, they couldn't hit a three. They were one out of 16 from three in the first half. They couldn't really get anything at the rim. They were three of 10 from mid. It was just an absolutely atrocious performance. Now, can I take something away from the second half? They did get it as close as 12 at one point. Can I take something away from the fact that they only allowed the Celtics to shoot three of eight at the rim in the second half? Well, if I had watched it, I could tell you, but I wasn't going to watch the second half of a 30-point game. So, uh, I, I guess we'll just have to find out in game two i was i drove up to sacramento during uh, the first game and i watched uh i watched that game during the second half of this hawks boston game because that was a better use of my- the the other thing that i'm going to keep an eye on and um i think this is just going to be a key question over the course of the series and i guess more accurately the next one is evaluating joe Mazzula. you know this was his first playoff game i thought that the overall strategies worked out pretty beautifully for him going small over going big was the right approach and you know that that's one of the bigger variables that might not get as much attention is yes the boston celtics have a remarkably similar team other than malcolm brogdon to last year but they also do have a new head coach and so we'll see what what Missoula's choices are and and a lot of that gets illuminated by when a team faces difficulty which my instinct is the celtics will not in the macro sense in the series maybe in the micro sense I, I i like you i think they'll lose a game just like also the celtics team can do that like they can just trick away games or the and the hawks are good enough to of course win one on their own merit but like i am interested in that with missoula but i would say he passed the first test no absolutely and, and they had a really good plan with uh getting guys going to the rim a few other notes here i mean atlanta's perimeter de- defense in addition to their health defense was atrocious sadiq bay deandre hunter got blown by quite a bit one-on-one by the likes of Tatum and Braun. Jalen Braun came back from this hand issue where he uh, said that he cut his hand trying to clean up a broken face at his house. And while many people are like, oh, it must have been something untoward that happened. I will say it does like it's on like the, the inside of his palm. So probably not a cut area that would happen if you like punched some glass or something like that so uh you know maybe you should take the kind of like uh hand model approach from seinfeld and maybe not clean up broken glass with his bare hand or maybe it's something else who knows but in any event he said that he got his stitches taken out but then that the wound actually opened up during the game he had to have it addressed he's been like trying to deal with finding the right padding and way to manage it and he said his six turnovers weren't good part of that was just struggling to to feel the ball very well so that, that's something to consider going forward here what did you make of sam hauser playing over grant williams it was definitely surprising i know that there that hauser that has happened at other points in the year i i mean i think of grant williams as a superior player but i also don't know that there's like a screaming fit for grant williams especially because he he's often better defending bigger players and there just aren't that many guys on the Hawks that you think of as a perfect Grant Williams matchup. So I, I, I was surprised, but I wasn't like stunned or angered by it. Yeah, Hauser didn't do much, but I thought he held his own defensively. He is a better shooter than Grant Williams. I mean, maybe there's even a thought that Hauser is better moving his feet on the perimeter against Trey Young. Like that's where Grant has really struggled is against staying in front of small guards and containing. Uh, obviously, in the next series against Joel and the series after that, potentially against Giannis, he'll be huge. And he was great against kd he was great against Giannis uh, in the first two series last year did a decent job against jimmy butler as well so yeah i can see how it's possible that going with hauser is a better matchup in this series where there isn't necessarily anyone for grant williams to guard like you know if they started like trying to post up john collins or something and he started to dominate then grant williams could come in and, 
and would have more of a role. It does speak to how deep this team is, though, that I mean, they played eight and Grant Williams certainly could be a ninth. You know, they didn't bother with the Mescala or Cornette brigade at all. How do you think Rob Williams looked? I thought he looked pretty good physically. I mean, had a couple of springy defensive plays out there and, and of course, had his head to share of dunks as well. I, I won't say that possession by possession, he looked as dominant as like last year in the finals when he was available to play. But for a for a game one where he played 22 minutes, yeah, I thought it was fun. And the Hawks were 5 of 29 from three, even as they made their comeback. And even as they held Boston to 38 points in the second half, like maybe it actually even could have got interesting if they could have hit any three pointers at all. And Trey was 5 of 18 from the field overall. DeJounte Murray was 10 of 25 for and four free throws. Like those guys combined for one of 11 from three. I and mean, they really just could not get anything going. They at least got a few offensive rebounds. Most of those coming from Anyeka Kongu. They've tried to offensive rebound more with Snyder. Maybe that's something they can get. But and they just didn't get it up enough three-pointers either. And there are a lot of people who might be like, well, when you take more three-pointers, then there's more variance. In some ways, there's actually less variance because it allows you get the sample size big enough that your luck can kind of even out. Whereas if you don't take that many, you are more prone to some five out of 29 nights. But of course, Boston, they're very focused on taking those away. So yeah, Trey was awful. I mean, he needs to have games where he's the best player on the floor if they're going to be remotely competitive in the series. We haven't mentioned Jason Tatum's name and just to have it out there, 25 points, 10 and 23 from the field, 11 rebounds in 40 minutes of action. I thought thought he looked very good, but not like ridiculous but that's all they needed yeah and Jalen despite the six turnovers had 29 points he again he's probably the guy they struggle to match up with the most they just don't have anyone who can deal with his combination of of size and quickness let me see if I have anything else here I don't think so yeah Jalen Johnson was in the rotation he was very active in some good ways and some bad ways mostly bad he was three of ten the Celtics are just going to let him shoot particularly if he's above the break I I might try to get him down in the corners but he he had a couple offensive rebounds and and a steal and he's he's just active out there it gives him some athleticism I think you just got to kind of deal with the fact that he's going to do some good things and some bad things and he was very useful in in the game against Miami and they just they need someone who's got some sort of juice athletically in the front court i'm intrigued by what jalen johnson could be in a year or two with quinn snyder and like what this coach he threw some pretty nice passes in this he did like i'm seeing more growth in in jalen johnson's game overall it's just that this isn't necessarily like it's it's gonna take some time we got another day of nba action so it's time for your fan duel crew to make their bets you know that new customers who bet five dollars get two hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you win Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and Sirius XM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and Sirius XM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. 
All right, welcome on now to our discussion of part two of the NBA first weekend of the first round. And we'll start here by talking about the LA Lakers grabbing game one in Memphis with a tremendous performance that we talked about it live on playback getplayback.com slash Nate Duncan NBA. You can join us, sign in with your cable or streaming provider, and then you can just watch the game all in one window with us. There's an app. You can also do it on desktop as well or connect your computer to the TV. That's what I do. So hope you'll join us there. Our next game is going to be Tuesday. We'll do the end of Cavs Knicks if it's close, uh, but then the main event will be game two of Phoenix and the Clippers. Clippers won game one there as well, which will be the next one we talk about after this one. But where should we be? begin with Lakers and Memphis. Well, I want to begin, for those who didn't watch it, with a clarification that while this game ended 128-112 in favor of the Lakers, it was at one point 113-112 in favor of the Lakers, and then they went on a completely incredible, and and honestly, at least pretty well-earned, run to end the game. So this was a hard-fought, close game, and I think what was most stunning for me, for those who remember, I haven't been watching as much NBA over the last couple weeks, so there are a few teams that I'm, let's call it a little bit rusty. So I was very interested in what we were seeing from LeBron James. And LeBron, you know, it was kind of passive, was taking a lot of jump shots, wasn't impacting the game too much offensively in the early part of the game. I'm like, oh, is it going to be him late? Well, the Lakers had a dynamic person running their show. It just wasn't LeBron James. It was Austin Reeves. Yeah, Reeves had a stretch. He kicked it off with one of the best passes. I don't know if it's one of the best passes I've ever seen, but it was up there. Just an incredible pass behind the back. He's along the right baseline, throws it behind the back, and not only behind the back, but he had to like extend behind the back because it almost would have gotten intercepted. Out to Rui Hachimura at the top of the key. Hachimura was the hottest guy in the gym, drains the three, and then Reeves proceeded to go on his own personal nine-point scoring spree out of pick and roll with Anthony Davis. He got into the mid-range for a couple of buckets. Then he pulled up for a three out of pick and roll. I think he got to the foul line for a couple times as well. And that was the game. They couldn't stop Austin Reeves and Anthony Davis, but really Austin Reeves in pick and roll. LeBron is off the ball. They had Dylan Brooks guarding him. They had Hachimura spacing out. He was spacing the floor for them pretty well. And then they had D'Angelo Russell as well. So we've always wanted to see the Lakers go spread pick and roll. We just didn't think it would be with Austin Reeves as the ball handler, but that's what we saw over and over again down the stretch to great reviews for the LA Lakers. And I think it's a logical starting point also because one of the stories of Lakers Grizzlies to me was both teams leaning heavily in different ways on players they didn't expect them to do so. And and so Austin Reeves getting that 23 points and four assists is one of those. Rui Hachimura will inevitably talk about the leading scorer for the Lakers in this game. 29 points in 30 minutes off the bench, 11 of 14 from the field, including a huge five of six from three. I believe he had four made three-pointers in the third quarter. When and a was- huge dunk on Jaron's head, yes. too. And then another one of those players was Jaron Jackson Jr. offensively. Jaron took 21 shots, which was the most on the Grizzlies. Also had four assists, which was the second most on the Grizzlies on his way to 31 points in 37 minutes. 
minutes. And so you had these unlikely contributions, and that's a part of how the Lakers had four 20-point scorers. The person of whom had the least was LeBron James. He had 21 points, Davis had 22. But I think kind of noting that, and we'll go through some of those performances over the course of it, I kind of actually want to start at the beginning because it can get lost a little bit that in that very beginning stretch when the Lakers built up a lead, Anthony Davis was absolutely the best player on the floor. And he wasn't necessarily throughout, but I thought we saw at times offensively, but especially defensively, how disruptive he can be. Well, the biggest thing we were looking at in this series coming in was John Morant versus Anthony Davis. And of course, John Morant's availability going forward is in question. We'll talk about that probably at the end once we analyze this game. But I thought Davis largely got the better of that matchup. But John only tried him a couple times. He had a spectacular finish early. Davis got another stop on him. Uh, and I think there were really only two times that Ja went right at Anthony Davis at the rim when Davis was in position. But there are a lot of kind of pull-ups from Ja, I mean, maybe even more so that Ja only took 14 field goal attempts and even more more so that he had two assists and six turnovers in his 30 minutes. And so the Lakers were successfully able to play the pick and roll with Ja two on two. That's why he didn't have the assists. And that worked out pretty well for LA. And so the Grizz had to go to other options. That became Jaron Jackson Jr., who, again, couldn't really get much done against Davis, but he was going right at LeBron. He was going right at Hachimura. Really, anyone else that they put on him, Jackson was getting to his short floater and hook game. It's not always pretty with him because he likes to be on that right block. He likes to turn to the left hand. And a lot of times, guys know that's exactly what he's going to do. So they're in position. Like, there are a couple times LeBron knew exactly where he was going. And Jaron just kind of awkwardly had to step, was off balance. And but still with his great touch, which I think has really become underrated, particularly in the last third of the season, once Ja went out with the suspension, that Jaron just like was not easily stopped in this game. He's scoring against like some pretty darn good defenders other than Anthony Davis uh, for the Lakers. So that was a, a big story. He had 19 in the first half. Also had he was pretty good defensively, but he was not to me on the level of Davis defensively because Davis had stats that we haven't seen in a long time on the defensive end. Seven block shots three steals. Incredibly impressive. Davis actually got pretty close to reasonably close to a five by five. I mean, two steals is, is a lot to gain. But the other reason why Jaron Jackson was well below Anthony Davis overall in impact was the Lakers on the offensive glass, which was a huge part of portions of this game. The Lakers started out the game with an offensive rebound rate over 40% and ended up settling at 35.6, which is still incredibly high. And they used those extra possessions to great effect. They ended up with 22 Two second chance points. They won that 22 to 10. The Lakers made more second chance baskets than the Grizzlies attempted, which is always a positive sign for a team. And when you consider that, in addition to that, the Lakers outran the Grizzlies. So this wasn't even a situation where you're trading off rigidly. The Lakers played only 72% of their possessions in the half court. They were even they were less efficient per play in transition than the Grizzlies were, but they ran so much more that they got they got, did very well. Yeah, AD, those numbers with the seven blocks and three steals haven't been done since Draymond Green in, I think it was in 2016, probably was against Portland, is in May. So that's early May, so that's probably second round. And uh, he was a game best plus 27. He also was quite good offensively also. At 22 points, 10 of 17, he had a injury scare as he so often seems to right before the half where 
he got stripped by Jaren and wasn't able to move his right arm, but apparently it was a stinger. He was able to recover at halftime and return to the game and played quite well in the second half. Since you brought up LeBron, I want to just kind of mention his game a little bit more. Dylan Brooks was the main matchup against LeBron and LeBron really didn't try him at all. I don't know if LeBron, I mean, he did go eight out of 16. Half of those were threes. He made three of them. He made a one really deep three that was huge uh, in the third quarter. Five assists, two steals, three blocks. And he really didn't have any drives that I recall in the half court where he was just initiated. It was if they tried the pick and roll, a lot of times it was Jaron switching onto him and he just wasn't really trying to take either of those guys. I'm not sure that he can, quite frankly, now because he's LeBron James and he found a way to contribute with his shooting. And more importantly, in the floor game, he was also fantastic there. He had three blocks all of them of spectacular variety Uh, chase down coming over from the weak side had two steals only had to play 34 minutes as well they clearly were really watching his minutes very closely and i'm sure had they not been able to get anything going maybe he would have tried to do more in pick and roll or posting up down the end of the game but it just it, it wasn't needed and so he was able to concentrate much more on giving them something defensively and i thought the lakers defense uh, for large portions of this game was pretty darn good i thought dennis Schroeder was solid uh, vanderbilt was kind of only okay uh, i thought against job but uh, that was how they started out the matchups they had lebron actually guarding guarding jaron and davis on tillman and vanderbilt on joss they could maybe do some switching there uh or they could just have davis backing off into the paint and uh, morant a little bit loath to attack him so i, I thought overall their defense uh, other than just jaron going at them one-on-one in the post like the grizz didn't really have many other plays that they were running that really were working particularly well memphis had a respectable but not dominant 99 offensive rating and first shot half court offense and they and some of that i think was was you know like unsustainable i mean jaron can make those shots he has really good touch but they they were often well contested and taylor jenkins even before we get into the john morant part of the story like he has some really tough decisions to make because and this is a through line that i've tried been laying throughout this season and of course it's exacerbated by the absences of stephen adams and brandon clark but he doesn't have a ton of options here. So Santi Aldama, I thought, was mostly okay during his 24 minutes of action. They tried David Roddy at a couple different points. They didn't really try John Conchar, and then they had Tyus Jones and Luke Kennard on the perimeter line. But I love Xavier Tillman's defense. He makes it easier for the Lakers to defend the Grizzlies because you could put a, a great guy like Anthony Davis outside of the action, and he can help with a reckless abandon and everything else. And But the problem is, like, okay, well, Xavier Tillman's a limitation. He only played 22 minutes in this game he doesn't do a whole lot offensively there aren't that many other places you could turn and part of that is because they made the decision to let kyle anderson d'anthony melton go they functionally exchanged them for more minutes for zyre williams who hasn't really done it this year in part due to injury david roddy who played nine minutes in this one didn't do a lot to me of note and jake laravia who didn't play at all We got another day of NBA action, so it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. 
I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus Trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't, as you know, I don't think Aldama was bad other than when he and the rest of the Grizz decided that they were going to just try to isolate five times in a row on Anthony Davis in the first that quarter. Was, that was <laughs> surreal. Like, there was the, there was the stretch where it was just like, what, the process was was very bad for the Grizz. It was like, there's only one thing that you really can't do right now, and they just kept on running into that that wall, and it was, it was very strange. But yeah, Aldama, he had a couple threes. He wasn't the greatest defensive rebounder. No one on the Grizzlies really is. Um, so I thought, you know, he, was, he wasn't exactly yeah. solving I, I thought Jackson really failed as a defensive rebounder in this game. Three defensive rebounds in 37 minutes. And sometimes you'll say, well, you know, that's fine. Like, it's not just all on, like, the big to get the defensive rebounds. But Jackson certainly isn't a box-out guy. And there were just so many defensive rebounds where he was just was close to him. He just mistimed his jump. He couldn't get his hand on the ball. He has such unbelievable timing as a shot blocker, but he just has never had the knack, whether it's for trying to control space as a rebounder and box out or to just go get the ball out of his area or even grab the ball as in his area. He averaged six rebounds a game this season. And for there are just so many times when he was around the ball and just couldn't grab it. And that really, I thought hurt the Grizz. I, I, as I was well. because because of the sequencing of the games today. I was thinking about Memphis when Kevin Love was grabbing defensive rebounds for Miami, and yes, he has plenty of flaws. I'm not saying Kevin Love would be the savior for the Memphis Grizzlies, but that person who has a nose for the ball would make such a huge difference for them. Yeah, and it just the the Grizz had so many guys out there like Aldama, Tyus Jones, Roddy. Like those are just guys. They don't really bring a particular. Uh, magnitude of skill set in any one area. Like, I'll tell you, all right, I'll make some open yeah, threes the, the, sometimes. Yeah. I mean, if you want to, I, I call it existential panic, but the easier shorthand is the oh shit players. Like, the, the idea that there's something that they do, even if it's a very specific small thing, like they're a really good shot blocker or they're a very good, you know, offensive rebound position guy. The Grizzlies don't have a ton of players outside of Ja and Jaron and Bain, who I love, of course, who really make you sweat. And the Lakers, not only do they have a number of those players in normal times, but they had an extra couple in Reeves and Rui Hachimura, who was awesome too. Yeah, and don't worry. We'll, we'll get back to all these Lakers guys uh, as well. But I, I think in addition to obviously the Morant issue going forward and clearly uh, Jog going out when he did, when the game was still pretty close, the Grizz essentially didn't score in the competitive portion of the game after that. And clearly they would have gone more to Ja at the end of the game. And maybe he would have tried Davis and maybe he would have had more success than he did and he is the the biggest part of their identity but yeah they just it used to be that the guys they're bringing off the bench were hard to play against and they were good defensively and they'd force turnovers and get them out in transition and that that just isn't their identity right now like none of these guys are just oh they're so bad they're just killing them and canard obviously is a different type of player and maybe you could argue that they should have played him more but 26 minutes off the bench is a fair amount for 
Kennard. And, and, it, um, and it's, you know, it was weird he, that Kennard yeah. only hit one three. That one was a wide open corner one off a pass from David Roddy. Um, I mean, you'd expect a little bit more. And that, I, I didn't see anything that the Lakers were defending him super duper well. And I should mention why the Osha thing. Like, Kennard's a good enough shooter. And then Steven Adams as a screener, it's just that Steven Adams is unavailable. Yeah. And I thought also that Ja really missed Adams. Yes today because Adams not only would he set a great screen at a point of attack then he would do the thing where he rolls right into Anthony Davis and prevents Davis from helping and Jaws so fast he can kind of work around Adams setting a screen on his own man after he's already set the screen for Jaw, and then of course he can get on the offensive glass after Jaw would potentially miss a shot or a floater or something like that so yeah they miss Adams of course he's out for the playoffs with that PCL issue uh, and Let's turn back to the Lakers now. Um, Reeves, uh, we mentioned his incredible run down the end. I thought his defense on Desmond Bain was also outstanding. He, he We saw him defend Clay Thompson extremely well earlier in the season. And so he is pretty tireless off the ball. And Bain had a couple of times where he's able to elude him on handbacks. But uh, the Lakers overall were able to really contest Bain. Well, I think they actually blocked two of his three-pointers. Bain did get fouled on a three, which got him uh, three free throws. But I think overall their contests were good. Bain was three. Three of 10 from downtown, six of 18 overall. And it did have the 22 points because he's seven of seven for the following. But I thought they contained Desmond Bain relatively well. And that was a big part of, of how they're able to win. But it's not like the Grizz were awful from three, 13 to 36. That's like pretty good number for this team. But I, I think Reeves, because he's solid defensively if that adds another element he can play on or off the ball uh, on offense he was three or five from downtown as well so he he's becoming a really good player there's a lot of talk about the arenas rule we'll of course get more into that when we discuss free agents and we see whether he is able to continue this level of play because he's had games like this for the lakers when lebron was out as well yeah and for those who are interested right now i did write a piece on austin reeves and the arenas rule for the athletic before i went on actually i think it was while i was on paternity leave i was doing i was I was texting with Shams and I'm like, oh, this is worth a piece and, and, and did that. And we've mentioned his name a few times, but I want to give a little bit more emphasis to Rui Hachimura. I was very absolutely. I was very surprised by how effective his game was offensively, had that big dunk, but was five of five overall in the restricted area and then was bombing those threes. I mean, that third quarter was extremely important. He hit four three pointers in five and a half minutes, and that's the five and a half minutes he played. It was actually a tighter window than that, of course, was plus nine during that stretch and that was huge for the Lakers. They were, were outscored by 11 in the second and then outscored the Grizzlies by 12 in the third to, to make their way back into the lead. And Hashimura showed more depth. He still has defensive wrinkles for sure. Doesn't always make the best reactions. But we wondered how his how his offensive game could evolve. And not every game is going to be 29 points on 15 shooting possessions, but he showed glimpses of what his scoring touch could do if you extended the range a little bit. And then he attacked some mismatches really well, including one where he made a great pass. Yeah, that, that was pretty shocking. <laughs> I think, I can't remember who he set up. It might've been Reeves at the end of the shot clock, either him or Russell. And yeah, four or five above the break. That was the biggest stat, including that huge three that Reeves set up with the awesome behind the back pass. And then also it's five of five at the rim. And so he, he took three shots from mid-range. His only two misses were from mid-range. He was one out of three. But to be able to get that many shots at the rim and from three and, and knock them down efficiently was really exciting. He, I think he held up reasonably well on defense. He wasn't able to guard Jaron one-on-one. Nobody except Davis could do that. Jaron cooked Vanderbilt as well when they were switching Vanderbilt onto Jackson out of uh, pick and rolls 
And maybe James could do better if he were like really engaged at the end of the game against Jackson. But Lakers in the end, 16 of 37 from downtown, still not a great shooting team. What did you make of D'Angelo Russell's game and his 19 points in 36 minutes? Russell was pretty brutal in the first quarter. Um, had some forced misses, had couple of a couple of awkward plays, and also his defensive foibles were more present. But then I thought he settled yeah. down and played a pretty reasonable game after that. Made some incisive passes. Had a couple of a real beauty to Anthony Davis that I think ended up becoming nothing just because it got deflected. I think it was Jaron or something else like that. But had some good passes. That, yeah, that was actually the play where Davis hurt the shoulder. He threw this yeah, unbelievable pass. Uh, past two guys but then they, they recovered and were able to stop Davis at the rim but but, but what was so uh, fascinating to yeah. me was that eventually Austin Reeves was a better creator than D'Angelo Russell and he's obviously a superior defender and I believe Reeves is a superior off-ball player as well so that puts the Lakers in a good position where you don't have to lean on D'Angelo Russell as heavily as many of his former teams have but if he's doing well if he's you know kind of functioning within the flow then you can you can have it so I thought he was fine but but they don't have to lean on him if fine is what he's doing yeah and when the Grizz targeted him they met with success but I think that that was just sort of more in the flow they weren't that intentional about it I think they probably should have really tried to do more of that and should do so particularly in future games particularly if Morant is not available uh strategically anything that that popped out to you the base assignment of Vanderbilt on John Morant was intriguing but also made made intuitive sense I think that yeah well there's no one else in the starting lineup that can guard him right you, you would either if you didn't do that you would have to start Schroeder instead. And they, they to close the game, they actually went with Hachimura, although they were helped in doing that by the fact that Ja was out. And Correct. so that enabled them to have Hachimura, Russell, and Reeves all in there together. Had Ja been available, they probably would have needed to have either Schroeder or Vanderbilt on the floor. Those are really the only two guys well, that they trusted to guard Ja Morant. This isn't rigidly a tactical element, though I think it does tie in. But Dylan Brooks picked up his third foul in the second quarter, and Taylor Jenkins pulled him. He ended up with three fouls. I'm not criticizing Jenkins for removing Brooks. Brooks can pick up fouls. But I didn't think they missed him defensively that much, which was a big surprise. Dylan Brooks is a wonderful defender. I thought that was also LeBron just not being aggressive enough, not really taking advantage of some of those opportunities. But leaning... They they left Brooks wide open, though. They really were. And he was two of nine. Dylan Brooks... downtown. And I I don't think he was taking bad shots in this game I mean one or two but like Dylan Brooks you could see this in the Lakers approach Dylan Brooks attempted one fewer shot than John Morant and had the same number of assists he didn't have the six turnovers that John did but like in part because of the way they were defending Morant like it put more on Bain's plate it put more on Dylan Brooks's plate and most of the time I don't think that worked out particularly well for the Grizzlies offense I mean John Morant was going against some really tough defenders because it's like you know they they run that base thing and if they want to switch it or go after it and then you have Anthony Davis just waiting in the paint Morant hit a couple of threes but wasn't dominant in that in that area at all so I liked the overall strategies that Darvin Ham was deploying yeah I would say in this one Davis
Davis was probably the best player overall. He's going to be something that the Grizz are going to have to figure out a way to solve. And maybe that is Jackson at center, Brooks at the four, and they put Kennard out there. But just the lack of another three and D type of guy on this team. And I, you know, I don't know that Melton or Anderson would have been the guy there, or even someone like Brandon Clark who could get on the offensive glass. Like the, the Grizz just don't have. And this is something we talked about too, even, even with Clark and Adams, but particularly even more so without them, they just don't have a fifth guy that you really believe in at this level. And they don't have a modern lineup that makes sense. You'd love for them to say, all right, well, AD's causes us problems. Fine, AD, you guard, you, we're going to play a lineup where you have to guard Jaron Jackson, or you have to guard a shooter and we're going to make you cover more ground and Jaws could be really quick. Or will then Jaron can post up some mismatches if you try and switch. And they just, they don't have the personnel to put Anthony Davis into difficulty. I, I will give them the Lakers credit. They did vary up their defense a little bit in the second half with more mobility, but in large part, they just had Davis stand around the rim and he did a really nice job defending in the half court. And obviously the Lakers winning the possession game. That's another big part of that Grizz formula. So if this, but if this is going to just be, and this is, we'll even, we'll talk about John in a second. This will kind of assume that he's able to play again in this series, if not in this next game. If it's just half court offense against half court offense and the fast break and the offensive rebounding game don't really go in favor of the Grizz, that's, that's going to be tough gonna be tough for memphis um now obviously the role players going so crazy for the lakers that was an issue but i mean i kind of like the lakers depth more than memphis right now i do too and the lakers having more cogent options that may or may not work in a given game is is useful and you know so there'll there'll be times that malik beasley is hitting shots and that'll be different and and you know Rui had this huge game i don't know that it'll be mo bamba at any point in the series but maybe it could be and they didn't have they didn't deploy lonnie walker which wasn't a huge surprise at all to me considering his role in the rotation basically since the trades happen but that's good news for Darvin Ham that they have these other places to go and obviously one of the other ones is LeBron James and so it looks like Anthony Davis's stinger is that was a temporary thing now there could always be another thing with Anthony Davis that's the way these go but John Morant's injury is definitely concerning the good news is that the x-ray was clean John Morant says it is a hand issue not a wrist issue but there are a lot of different things that that we could find in time and discomfort I, I, my instinct is that he at bare minimum will not play in game two and it could extend beyond that i hope it doesn't and then it's also a reminder of something i I brought up yesterday the thing in the playoffs that if you if if you lose the first two games then you have to win four out of five even if they're mostly at home another one of those is when a player plays hurt they're not you like when a player is in the game that does not mean they're 100 and we could see a limited john morant at some point later in the series as well yeah and he was already apparently dealing with this hand issue had a pad on it and i'm not it seems weird that the x-rays were negative and i mean it's a sprained hand i guess like i'm not sure i just don't know enough about hand injuries i mean when that fall that he had was miserable we can talk more about that in a second but yeah it feels like this is the type of thing where i mean if he doesn't have a broken hand hopefully he can get back at some point in the series but i mean making it for this next game could be tough now the grizz the yo-yo principle losing the first game at home that'll be a common (laughs) refrain losing the first game at home today for the higher seed but you do see teams come out really hard in game two particularly after losing the first game at home Uh, another 
small strategic thing. I mentioned Davis was plus 27 in 37 minutes. Well, that meant that the Lakers were negative 11 with him off the floor. And so they largely went with LeBron and Hachimura. They didn't play either Gabriel or Bamba. They're two more traditional backup bigs. And I don't think they want to play either of those guys. But Jaron really went to town against that second unit at the start of the second quarter. And Jaron, at least to his credit, only had three fouls. So that that was encouraging that he was able to stay out of foul trouble for like the first time in his entire playoff career. Maybe you even, if you're the Grizz, would try to get Ja Morant, if he's available, back out there. And usually the way that he, he comes out after about nine minutes and comes back in with about nine or eight minutes left in the second quarter during playoff time, usually Jenkins tries to limit his minutes more, particularly early in series. That was going to be the plan this time. He probably only would have played 35 this time. And part of why they're able to limit it too is that the Jaws timeout was lining up with Davis's timeout. And that's the Grizz were doing well in those minutes. So there was no rush to bring him back. But I would try to get Jaw away from AD because they have absolutely no backup. And they also don't really, I think, have anyone who really can stay in front of Ja Morant. And so I'd love to see Ja just go into his isolation package or pick and roll with Jackson with AD off the floor. If you could line that up as the Grizz, I, I would really be trying to do that. Oh, along those lines, you brought this up during the live show, but the Lakers missed an opportunity to play D'Angelo Russell when John Morant was off the floor, just because that takes away an easy attack point there. You know, try to get it on a switch. Yeah. And- uh, although it, it must have been that easy because the Grizz didn't really attack it. But <laughs> That's another adjustment. But yeah, as the, as the series goes along, they probably will target Russell more, you would think. Jaws injury was just an absolute bummer, and it's just another miserable consequence of the charge rule as it currently stands that one of the best rim protectors in nba history rather than going vertical tried to take the charge i thought it was a terrible call too uh they did they elected not to challenge it but i mean Ja went like flying over davis's shoulder because i thought davis was not in his path when Ja started his upward motion and it's tough with guys like Ja or Giannis too because their upward motion starts earlier than a lot of guys and so referees i think can miss the call because the point of contact happens so much later it could be he starts the upward motion and then there's still plenty of time to move underneath him and be set not that set is the be all end all the inquiry but to just be in his path by the time the actual contact occurs but that's not supposed to be it's supposed to be you're there when he takes off because like you the guy's supposed to have a chance to to avoid getting undercut so i mean he just got bridged his right hand got he actually landed like on the back of his hand with it kind of curled backwards that just didn't really look good at all we're glad that he apparently doesn't have a broken hand although again like they could the grizz could just be obfuscating and messing with the lakers just to fuck up their preparation some and he'll probably be questionable going into the game and we'll get a good idea once we actually see whether he warms up or not i don't think we'll really get much until then i mean joss said he was what was the quote that he had his uh participation in the game was in jeopardy uh and he said it's his hand not his wrist still but yeah and, and then as we shift to the miami and milwaukee game uh, we don't have to talk about that but just to talk about the Giannis injury another one where kevin love trying to get outside the restricted area and he's basically right on there he gets called for a blocking foul because he didn't actually make it outside the restricted area but the charge circle is just too close right and then love actually took two charges later in the game where 
they were more legitimate, but he's t- it wasn't where he was undercutting a guy because he's taking them further out before the guy can actually get in the air. So that's why I've, I've always said I did this whole presentation on it from Sloan. I'm sure you can Google it of why the charge circle should be moved out further to a point where if you want to take the charge, you need to get there before the guy takes off. And if you're not there, then then you can just jump with them instead. And that'll lead to a lot fewer of these injuries to have two of the best 15 players in the NBA not be able to finish game one because they got undercut on charge attempts is really disappointing it's i don't want to dwell on this too severely because you and i have talked about it so much in the past but for a league that ostensibly cares about player safety it is incredibly frustrating that they haven't identified this as a problem because it doesn't make anything better and it makes so many things worse you can go back to kevin durant has been injured on a charge i mean you you and i have a litany that we could go through and the you know basketball doesn't always think of itself as an entertainment product and i think you know it'll be interesting to see how the effects of what baseball is doing which kind of are along those lines that that have people have seemed very happy about i haven't watched any baseball yet this year but not having your star players get hurt on plays that are, when when you're encouraging somebody to not do actual defense it is an obvious fix and there are numerous ways that they can do it but it is it is a solution it is a problem that needs a solution there are multiple solutions and it's time to do it well, the good news is that those baseline cameras get a really good view of the guys getting injured on these charge attempts. Speaking of low-hanging fruit that could improve. We got another day of NBA action, so it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and Sirius XM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and Sirius XM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. The LA Clippers seized a 1-0 lead against the Phoenix Suns, and I saw some comments coming out of people who cover the Suns along the lines of, all right, if they just play Suns basketball, they'll be fine, and I think they're going to win this series still. This was a weird game, but I saw a lot to be concerned about here from the Suns, and I think that's where I want to start is with these two issues. Number one is nobody on this team looks that good other than Devin Booker and Kevin Durant. And number two is then the other, I mean, Torrey Craig was pretty good in this game, although that was very much by design. Ty Lue said that after the game, they wanted him to shoot more. So, I mean, if he plays as well as he played in this game, they'll be okay. I don't know if he can do that every game, but then their deep depth also is it, basically everyone who's not in the starting lineup is really atrocious. And so those are two big, big concerns if this team is going to get to the point maybe they could get out of the West because the West just doesn't look that good right now. Although Denver obviously smoked Minnesota, so we'll uh, we'll have to see what the Suns look like in the next round. But 
actually winning the NBA championship against a full-strength Milwaukee or a Boston or even a Philly with Aiton and Paul being this bad, particularly Aiton, and then the lack of depth that they have, like something's going to need to change there. Those guys, all of those factors look terrible for them this game. I also thought that the overall approach in their late game offense was very concerning. The ball wasn't moving particularly well. It ended with a lot of DeAndre Aiton mid-rangers, which went in at a reasonably high rate. Aiton is good at those shots, but it is hard to build a fruitful offense on that as a foundation they also have some wonderful offensive players and they those guys didn't have the ball in their hands in the key moments as much as I would have liked and yes Chris Paul got to his spots and a number of times and had had some plays but the overall like there wasn't the dynamism in the Suns offense that you're hoping for a part of that logically is that these guys haven't really played together they haven't gotten they haven't gotten that time in and while Kevin Durant is a plug-and-play player in order to fully to make the offense sing it can be more complicated and so for me like if we're evaluating the Suns in the perspective of whether they can win this series I think the answer is clearly yes they they are they are good enough to do that I you know like the Clippers did win this game which means they have seized home court advantage but if we're looking at the Suns from the perspective of a month and a half from now can they have dispatched four different teams who are largely probably healthy in order to win an NBA championship It's going to be tough. No, I think so. And this is a game in which KD played 45 minutes. Booker played 43. Campaign was out with low back soreness. So Chris Paul had to play 39. Like he wasn't playing that much in like last year's playoffs before they got KD. Uh, Aiden played 33, Craig 27. And here's the other stat that was crazy. Took 19 three-point attempts. Yep. How many mid-rangers did they shoot in this game? Do at you one want to point, take a guess? I, like ha- I have first, it up. I have a, do, you want, do you want to guess? I, I, I do want to guess. Yeah, because at one point in the first quarter, they were one of 10 for mid range uh i'm gonna guess that they took 29 twos outside the paint 27 and then another 28 deep paint shots yeah upper, upper paint. paint upper I'll paint get there cooper, at some point cooper moorhead might be listening i'll get there at some point i mean we're gonna talk about the heat I'm guessing so yes. so that's now again I, i'm a little bit concerned that all of the nba scores are starting to get warrior scorekeeperitis and just not counting shots around the rim in the same way that we're used to and so i've had to start just kind of citing overall paint shooting numbers and i think it, i've just anecdotally seen a lot of paint shooting numbers going up for upper paint and then just fewer shot attempts in the restricted area overall but still this is a comically low number 19 three-point attempts and eight shots at the rim and that is really tough uh, to win that way and then that eight of 27 for mid-range they did manage to get to 26 of 33 from the line booker and kd shot 18 combined free throw attempts that kind of saved them and they still managed to have 27 assists on 39 field goals which is they're at least getting like some ball movement getting eaten a a few mid-rangers as well so it's not all just iso 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 pull up mid-rangers like they're better quality than they are for certain teams they do move the ball but yeah i mean that's that's very concerning and i want to just get back to what i was saying earlier before we talk about the clippers who obviously deserve a ton of credit for the way that they played and you know i don't know how sustainable some of that's going to be but uh they did cause problems for the suns tonight deandre and you know he was plus 13 okay uh now he did play mostly with the units that included most of the sun's other good players and he, he had 18 points 8 of 16 from the field he even got fouled once although his ability to avoid contact down there is pretty incredible but he only had one block shot and he was 
really bad, I thought, as a defensive rebounder. He had eight, but the Clips overall had 15, and I thought he was probably the biggest culprit in that huge possession down the end that took 50 seconds that ended in the Westbrook free throws that put the Clippers up three and really, I thought, snuffed out the Suns because they had the momentum there. If they could have gotten a few more possessions in the game, they might have been able to come all the way back. And just his lack of movement as a rebounder, and more importantly, I think his lack of intensity and movement as a help defender. Well, and, and you you yeah. said intensity movement. I want to add in his lack of feel as a help defender as well. Sure, like that he sure. he couldn't necessarily identify the circumstances where his presence could be truly beneficial, and that that factors into rebounding as well. And yeah, Aiden he was plus thirteen, but in in terms of like really impacting, we just talked about this with the Memphis Grizzlies, like changing what you do, changing what. Game. like Aiton wasn't that guy in this game and that's a huge concern for yeah. the Suns considering that he's guarding either Plumley or Zubots the entire game with zero shooting range he's just he's always just kind of standing there right he's kind of standing there with his arms out he's never you never just see him like make a hard movement never he'll never commit to a double team on like Kawhi Leonard or, or something like that right he never reacts hard to a driver and it, his rim protection numbers were really really bad this year and uh, you can see why if you go back and watch this game and so like he's got to be a very high quality starter particularly defensively for this Suns team to get to where they wanted to go and again I don't it's not doom and gloom like they they're this is the really the first good team they've ever played together which is incredible the first certainly the first good defense and that Clippers defense uh, was pretty good I'll get back to some of the Suns rotational quandaries in a bit but much of the talk was Russell Westbrook and he had a comically Westbrook-esque game although his defense was like legitimately good instead of like fake good and it has been in large part since joining the Clippers but Kawhi Leonard is that guy again Danny he is and 38 points 13 to 24 he only made three three-pointers but two of them were absolutely gargantuan late in the game yeah. all of them were spot-up looks too that he made he's like just a laser on those spot-ups at this point he is and Leonard getting to his spots he was at times guarded by KD we got to see them defend each other a little bit which was pretty pretty fun um and I was actually surprised that Kawhi had three turnovers but he is of course typically a very low turnover player and the idea that he is unperturbable and he's great in a different way than Kevin Durant is great they they both had some dominant elements elements of their performance and the Clippers without Paul George they they need a North Star even with Paul George but they need it even more without him and I thought Leonard had a lot of those big moments and another one of his big moments beyond those two three-pointers was the play where it looked like three different sons almost tied him up pulls the ball out and then kicks it to Eric Gordon who had just missed two three-pointers long and then ends up shooting the next one from about a two feet further out and swishes that one which really solidified the Clippers position yeah it really got exciting down the end uh, the clippers made three straight three-pointers they led by six a couple of times but the suns kept coming back kd hit a really tough uh, wing through we'll talk a little bit more about the end of the game but yeah leonard getting to his spots 10 of 18 on twos away from their only shot one shot at the rim which he missed off a beautiful backdoor pass from westbrook and uh, of course he made that three of five from three got to the line for nine of ten had five assists a clippers team that doesn't have the greatest ball movement in the world outside of russ they really don't have guys who are high assist players and plus three and and the 42 minutes as well really really impressive uh, for him i and really when 
Troy Craig, who they tried to put on him as like a body to get more size than a Kogi in the starting lineup, and Kawhi Leonard, he's gone up against Troy Craig before in the playoffs, actually. Craig was on the Denver Nuggets, although Grant was the primary defender on him, and Kawhi was kind of out of gas by the end of that series, and I think he's looking pretty good right now. He's looking pretty good down the end of the season as well. Like He's looking like a top five player in the NBA for sure right now. Um well, I still think Phoenix has enough firepower in this series, and you still kind of wonder about the Clips having a second-best player, who that is, and maybe that's just someone else on a night-to-night basis. But other than Kevin Durant one-on-one, and of course you can do stuff to get KD off of him, like Kawhi is a real problem for the Suns, and I think they really need to start thinking more about some serious double-teaming of him, which they never really got to. And I, I will credit the clippers for getting him moving a little bit more off the ball on some of these plays but the sun's really got to start double teaming him because he's out there with russell westbrook in a center most of the time or terrence mann in a center most of the time and this is not a good three-point shooting team for the clippers they were 10 of 31 and uh, only four three-pointers made by anyone who wasn't leonard or eric gordon what'd you make eric gordon's game thought he was stable defensively missed a couple of threes that could have functionally ended the game earlier but capable piece i I thought I thought you know it's funny there were there's some parallels between him and Norm Powell where it's like they they I thought they picked their spots reasonably well they did what was asked of them and did pretty well yeah 19 points 7 of 14 3 of 7 from 3 but more importantly it's the depth sure of some of those threes as well and they started off with Gordon actually as the matchup on KD they put Kawhi on DeAndre Ayton so that they could switch Ayton pick and rolls they didn't even end up really going to the Ayton pick and roll much at all early and instead they had they used Craig and Craig actually was able to get off pretty well for 9 to 12 uh he was plus 14 22 points they just ran their pick and rolls like it was Tory Craig eventually and it actually worked okay ish but I think that that was enough to flummox them as the Clippers got out to a 30 to 18 lead that you know had the Suns playing from behind most of the evening and so Gordon was a part of that like he can also guard Devin Booker as well they had Batum on Booker to start but Batum only played 21 minutes I'd like to see a little more of him but uh that's uh, I always feel that way <laughs> when Ty Lue is involved it, it seems like by the way I feel I feel I that, I feel that Z- way yeah, with Terrence Mann as well I will note just for now I mean we should talk about Westbrook though and yes he was three of 19 and god it was awful at times yes this is 18 that doesn't have a ton of creation but particularly in the third quarter when he missed his first six shots as the Suns were making a run to take the lead late in the third Kawhi wasn't getting as many touches it was awful it was, and he I think he took his first shot around the room I was must have been I think a backdoor from Kawhi I want to say to to finally get a layup in the fourth quarter but he didn't take a shot at the rim before that and the, he's just continuing usage like trying to post up with that right shoulder thing and that was looking awful as well but I you can't argue at all with the floor game he played I thought it was absolutely spectacular and in the end probably I was I tweeted during the game like no matter how good your floor game is you can't make up for I think it was two or 13 at the time 
overall, he was probably a negative, but in the last three minutes of the game, he was a massive positive. Huge, huge positive was a central figure in the offensive rebound of Palooza that took the... So the Clippers got the ball after two Chris Paul free throws, up one with a minute and eight seconds left. The Suns next touched the ball with 17.1 seconds left, down three after Westbrook made two free throws. He made those two important ones. And he then... Then he had a massive, massive defensive play, blocked Devin Booker, and sent the ball off of Booker while Booker was complaining to the refs about a foul that was not a foul. Um, and so then that that gave the ball to the Clippers. And from that point on, it, it, it did technically become a one-score game, but it became a one-score game because of a, a, a two that didn't really provide much menace. And so, yeah, Westbrook was, was huge then. And I wanted to point something out. Um, full credit to the great Marcus Thompson for bringing this to my and everyone else who saw its attention. This isn't the first huge statistical, but also like impact Russell Westbrook playoff victory where he shot three of 19 from the field. And it's it was a funny, <laughs> of course it would be Russ. Two years ago in that, it was a game that the Wizards beat the Sixers in that series, which I'd rather forget overall. Russell Westbrook somehow had a 19, 21, and 14 triple-double where he shot three of 19 from the field, helped by 13 to 16 from the line. Um, so it's kind of impressive that maybe arguably the two greatest three and three of 19 or more games in playoff history were Russell Westbrook. It's pretty appropriate. The other one that's up there is James Harden had a three of 20 again in a win against the Jazz in the 2019 playoffs. Yeah, and Russell, his defense also. I mean, he had a huge block on Booker where Booker, for some reason, I guess we could just talk about the, the last possession too before I talk more about Russell's overall game. Uh, so after Russ hits the two free throws, or, or he's fighting on the offensive glass three times in a row, a couple times Aiden doesn't get it, then Craig can't get it. And so 28 seconds left, new 14 in the shot clock for the Clips. They had already taken a timeout when Phoenix got within one right before the possession that would never end. So they take their last time out with 28 seconds left. What did you think of that idea? I thought it was going to come back to haunt them because not only do you, could you run into an issue with an inbound, but they still had a challenge remaining, which then they couldn't use for the rest of regulation. And they it was a circumstance where there had already kind of been a stoppage and I cracked up because one of their previous Tai Lu timeouts, I believe that was the use it or lose it with three minutes left, ended up being called, you know, did that to call a play and to use it before you lose it. And and, and Westbrook just went to just kind of autopiloted a throw to Kawhi Leonard who curled because of the defensive coverage. And so it became a bad turnover. Um, so I'm like, oh, what are you really going to draw up here? So I did have criticisms of it, but it did end up working out for the yeah. Clips, not only in the micro sense of that of that specific part, but also they didn't need it later in the game. Yeah, they were trying to get the ball into Leonard. They couldn't get it to him. Great denial by the Clippers. So Russ tries to basically drive past them denying Russ to get in the lane. And then he goes back to goal against Booker. And Booker overall, I thought, was fantastic defensively with his effort. But he committed a foul, which was ended up being an obvious foul. He kind of grabbed Russ's right arm as Russ is trying to use the off arm to back down. That's still, I think, something the league should look at is the guy's 
this idea of you you're able to just like use your forearm as a ward and then also like deliver the momentum of your body into the guy using your forearm but booger did kind of get his arm trapped in there rust to his credit despite really struggling on free throws the last few years does make those two to push it to three sun's timeout advanced ball 17 seconds left i was debating whether they should foul or not as i was doing playback which i'll probably do for a lot of these playoff games if i happen to be at home that night i'll just throw it on in the fourth quarter if it's close even if we're not technically doing it that night so keep your eye out for that on twitter unless there's a, a warriors game that day i'll probably be at home and just watching so makes it both advance the ball i thought they're gonna foul Clippers take out their center, put in Batum to switch everything, and that works to deny the inbounds. The Suns have to call another timeout. After the second one, they have Booker go stand back at half court. They get it to him. Russ is on him. And Russ was just playing like regular defense. And I thought it was really interesting that he said after the game, I thought he was going to go for the quick two. And he read it completely correctly because he was actually like kind of backed off him. I think it was a foolish decision, but he was 100% right that Booker and because they'd already used their last time out, going for the quick two was like even more asinine of a decision, particularly because then if you don't have the timeout, let's say they make two free throws coming back and you got to go for a three. Well, now they really can foul in the backcourt. You have no timeouts left and you're just you're never going to be able to get a three off that situation it's really dumb to go for the quick two there even more so than usual and even more so because like booker could have just pulled the three in his face it was, was yeah, like it was, it was off there. of him it really was and instead booker drives and once again this is the fallacy of the quick two okay if you have a guy wide open under the basket that has a 90 percent chance of making the layup and you can throw it to him okay i understand that that's that quick two you got nothing else right away go for it and again we're talking about shot clock off down three or more as the situation but it's not like automatic right like booker hard driving russ made an unbelievable block i mean just his wingspan i don't know what it officially is i mean it must be like 610 or more and this is booker going for like a left-handed hook shot over a 6-3 guard and russ blocks it and then is also able to save it off of booker and the clips get the ball back and they're able to inbound it just fine with the despite the no timeouts and the game was over and russ had a bunch of other plays too where he was just even if he was getting beat he was staying in the play and a few times maybe he gambled too much but he's so fast that even when he gets beaten he's able to accelerate and then tip the ball away from behind he probably got his ball on the or got his hand on the ball like six times on that move where he was trying to knock it away from behind and he only was credited with two steals in the end but i thought he caused a bunch more deflections i don't know if they ended up giving the steal to the guy who actually like gained possession yeah, they, they only point, listed westbrook with three deflections i thought it was more than that as well it was a hundred percent more than that yeah it was it was at least five for sure i mean they were talking about it on the broadcast before i i turned on mine and yeah the offensive rebounding was massive uh, particularly down the end he threw some beautiful beautiful passes as he does he is a great interior passer at this point in time so clips were able to overcome his shooting issues I thought Zubats was really good as a rim protector, as an offensive rebounder. He ended up negative 11. I didn't think that was necessarily his fault. I'll credit Lou for going back to him rather than Plumlee. They did play big the entire game as expected. I mean, who would have thought that both Robert Covington and Marcus Morris would be completely out of the rotation by the end of the season? But that's been the case. 
even with no Paul George. That's the crazy part. They don't even, they don't have Paul George and neither of those guys right. are playing still. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, I, I like the way that Lou used Polly, didn't overuse him to where he would get exposed defensively, that using Gordon ahead of Powell in the rotation, even though Powell had some nice drives, like that he got 14 points in 23 minutes. That's like, I think the stat line you want from Paul. Bones Highland hit a three early and then he got blocked three times in a row, twice by Booker going on, on fast well, breaks. I, I will note that one of but those, I, it yeah. was a, it was a really impressive a Booker highlight, but he also drills Bone ha- Bones Howard in the face. Like it, it was simultaneously. Yeah, after hitting, after hitting the ball, which the, the, but but yeah, you can't follow through and smack the guy in the face either. But Highland, I thought he competed defensively, had a steal, and they weren't really like able to go after him in any way. And that that takes me back to the Suns. And again, we'll talk about their deep rotation in a second. But the late game offense, Danny, what was up with that? I wish I knew. <laughs> it, w- it it definitely left a lot to be desired. I thought it was one of my big takeaways from the game when we started talking about this contest because they, you know, you have two wonderful primary offensive talents in Booker and Durant, both of whom have should have an opportunity to create an isolation. Like one, only Kawhi, Kawhi Leonard isn't the defender he used to be, but Kawhi Leonard can only guard one of those two guys. And instead, there was a lot involving Aiton. There was a lot in involving cp3 and they put Shamit out there for for some of those stretches like especially if it was an offense only possession but i didn't i for me the more bigger concern was the process more than the result yeah and they ended up winning this game and it wasn't that close down the end but the other sun's game i've watched that was close was kd's home debut where he and but in this game that game he was really struggling to score and and jaden mcdaniels was doing a really good job on him against minnesota and dan and i did a gamer on that and they went CP eight and pick and roll most of the way. And that was really surprising to me that they went that way. But, and maybe there's just a feeling that hey, Chris Paul is at the controls. He's a great point guard, but to just have him run the pick and roll, like you're going to end up with him or eight and shooting. <laughs> and it's probably going to be a mid ranger. And like CP is not at the same level that he was last year where maybe that wouldn't be totally insane Aiden is not really at the same level that he was last year either and you still have a guy out there you can help off of in that situation in Craig and the problem is that their only two guys who can shoot are also their best scorers and KD was he was asked why he only took one shot in the last five minutes and he said well you know I was trying to space the floor for my teammates and I was getting doubled when I got it which that's a problem because they don't have they've got a center and they've got Chris Paul who's taking a few more threes but he's not like some great spot up shooter he's not gonna like move off the ball and get opening at two three-point attempts in this game and they've got a, another guy in Craig who's like not a good shooter either and so I don't think this is the right approach but as crazy as it is you in some ways can understand that like Aiton probably has to be involved in the play right like he can't just stay he needs somewhere like although if he's just standing along the baseline then the center can be in a health position now what I would like is hey let's run like a dummy pick and roll and then let's have Booker and KD interact like a, on the other yeah, side like or maybe sec- we could a run a Booker KD action. pick and roll a or, second side action is the counter yeah which you didn't see I mean I thought both Booker and KD the KD's only shot was a sideline out of bounds that TNT of course because they uh. are, they apparently have no money or, no actually it wasn't even that they're doing no, some hi- something like bull- bullshit like replay it wasn't a commercial yeah and they just like the highlight package is too long and we just saw the ball going through the net I had no idea how it was that KD he got open it was an incredible shot down six with a minute 20 left they actually shot a three yeah so the late game offense a, a little bit of a concern and again it's like okay, well it'd be it would even be nice if they had like some other kind of point guard besides chris ball it was better defensively 
I don't think the Clippers went after that, so, nearly yeah. enough, especially like the real basic stuff, like set a screen for Kawhi Leonard with Chris Paul's man. They did it. Well, it worked. It worked. They ran it a couple of times down the end and then cp battled and and knocked it away from Kawhi, and then drew that complete bullshit loose ball foul because of course anytime he's going for a loose ball he's just gonna fall down immediately and the refs will call it for him every time he and bead kyle lowry those those are the three guys who do that crap all the time uh so and that was that got two free throws that got him within one and then they never they never i mean that's incredible they never got a shot in the air to tie it like how pathetic is that to to be down one with a minute nine left and they never got a shot in the air to tie the game let's talk about the sun's deep bench oh baby i mean it's not even deep bench just bench mandatory bench i mean so the only son who played yeah. more than eight minutes who didn't start is landry shaman who played 24 he took five shots in those 24 minutes made two of those and was negative 14 yeah yeah landry shaman's not any good by the way uh also like how does he how is it possible that he only took one three-point attempt like if you're gonna have him out there like how are you not getting him more than one three-point attempt it, it very much seems like the you have one job situation because it's not like he's an ace defender or anything like that or uh you know kogi only played seven minutes interestingly and maybe they just felt like there wasn't anyone for him to guard in this game and like craig played well i get why he didn't play that much i mean they should have probably played him more but still for to go you know booker 43 minutes and kd 45 kd 45 minutes plus four joel Embiid close to that stat line uh and kd had 11 assists like he's i thought he's he's trying to play the team game it's just he's not on the brooklyn the peak brooklyn nets or the peak warriors because it's just him and booker and guys basically like he needs to be more assertive i would say so and monty was clearly searching right so he, he tried biombo at center negative 11 in five minutes two of four from the line uh, it did have one big block he's a really good shot blocker but this is the the they tried it out wainwright okogi biombo shamit and booker at the end of the first quarter and then they went with the same group at the end of the third quarter except it was with landale instead of biombo and then they tried to go with wainwright at center for a little bit longer and that didn't work either and, and i mean it's pretty incredible that you've got all these guys playing less than 10 minutes and you're negative 8 negative 11 negative 10 negative 12 so as much as these guys are bad monty gonna say we're gonna play all three of these guys together and like Aiden only played 32 minutes. Like, at least leave Aiden out there with those guys. It just it, maybe like you could run a little bit of pick and roll. Like Aiden could try throw the ball in the post to Aiden or something like that. Like you just you're completely drawing dead trying to score with uh, poor Devin Booker and those three guys. Definitely a concern moving forward. And it's I one of the other elements, and this is you know something that I thought about when the trade happened is just that there aren't that many guys. I mean, the ideal would be T.J. Warren, obviously, who you think oh well, if they got the chance maybe they could do. Like I was you know Damian Lee. I, worth a shot certainly but But what happened to Damian Lee like is he like he at least he runs the floor he plays hard he'll move the ball he shot like 45 percent on three pointers this year I realize he's never gotten a big contract he's on a minimum contract but like what what did he do to not be in this rotation like he at least like understands how to play basketball like yeah he's not great defensively he's better than Terrence Ross though and Ross has shot like okay for them he only played four minutes uh and Shamit I guess they played him more because Payne was out and they were able to hey, still have more ball and like I don't think Cameron Payne is gonna be some panacea for this backup group either he's out with this low back soreness and that's a concern because 
because he suffered that injury like two weeks ago at this point week and a half ago they play again on tuesday which we'll be doing of course for uh for playback yeah i, I mean obviously we're talking about the suns at their nadir i expect them to win game two i expect them to win this series although that calling it six is looking pretty good now but yeah i mean this like kevin durant and devin booker are amazing but they they got a lot of work to do and particularly they have no assets to add this team to this team in the future either like chris paul he's only gonna get worse at this point yeah and but as you mentioned like this is a this is a low a low mark for the suns i think they'll look better in in future games though this is a reminder of you know it's, it's a high bar to be a championship level team and i'm hope that they reach that bar over the next two weeks over the next five weeks if they make it that far yeah to me i my adjustments i would play i mean they're not going to play damian lee they just don't like him at all tj warren that seems like they gave him a chance they but like i would just get those guys out there just because they're at least like bodies defensively especially against this team like they're they're playing westbrook in a center all the time like you should be able to just clog the paint double team Kawhi, get enough going defensively and just like spread the floor and just completely destroy these guys the clippers play good defense like they put some good defensive groups out there but like they shouldn't be able to just have avitza zubach just stand under the basket the whole game like you got kevin durant devin booker on your team just put some shooting out there with those guys and just fucking kill them all right sorry let's move on to miami milwaukee the big story of course is Giannis was undercut on a blocking foul by kevin love got bridged landed on what looked to be his low back tailbone uh, i'm not sure what the official designation was low back soreness or contusion or something like contusion. that so he was able to like move around but they decided to hold him out eventually and miami played the game of their lives even to win it although they won pretty comfortably we'll talk more about that but as far as Giannis, they i mean it seems like they have two days off here hopefully he can recover enough i mean it doesn't sound like there's anything that's really like messed up in there those tailbone if it is like more of a tailbone issue that is something that really can linger there just isn't much blood flow to that area and but you can also like put a pad on it and is, is, you just is hope that that's not something a, that's a gonna... lower body injury that i've had that you haven't had thank god i broke dude. my tailbone in it high school and it was terrible oh my god i mean it's probably how long did it take Months. to heal it takes forever right oh yeah it was bad yeah uh my wife had something like that snowboarding too uh early on when she's trying to learn by the way if you're an adult trying to learn a snow sport just do skiing don't do snowboarding i know snowboarding looks cooler like you're gonna you're just gonna bust your shit it's gonna be awful and then you're not gonna like it and you'll have wasted a bunch of money in any event so i think you know my best guess to be honest plays he'll probably be on like more of a minutes restriction in the next game we'll see how, how well he's able to play but they desperately desperately missed him jimmy butler was already on his way to an unbelievable game before Giannis went down but holy shit did he feast on this bucks defense which was unrecognizable you brought it up during the contest but jimmy butler being able to finish as successfully as he did around the basket was it was straight up jarring i mean you look at the overall overall shot chart for butler you know eight of nine in the restricted area nine attempts is pretty damn striking against a Milwaukee Bucks team albeit one that for most of the game was missing one of their two great rim protectors but then another six of ten in the upper paint and so Butler combined that out not even including free throws of which he took eight made five of those that's 14 made shots that's 28 points for Jimmy Butler and I would say you should add that to 32 32 of his 35 played 43 minutes as well which was really ridiculous he he's really up the minutes in the playoffs the 
last couple of years. Remember back in 2020, he didn't play that many minutes the first few rounds of the playoffs, even that first series against the Bucks back in 2020. This game very much had the feel of game one in 2021 when the Bucks just couldn't hit a three. Miami was hitting everything. Bucks ended up winning in overtime with the Chris Middleton shot over Duncan Robinson. And you're like, oh, here they go again. This is going to be a great series. I was like, ah, uh, no, actually, <laughs> the Bucks were just like oh, couldn't hit a shot because they're the Milwaukee Bucks. Speaking of that, Bucks. great yeah. stat from Zach Graham of the Ringer via Second Spectrum. The Heat shot 18% better than their effective expected effective field goal percentage in game one. That is the highest overperformance by any team in any playoff game over the last five non-bubble postseasons. Yeah, and I mean, some of the threes they were making were ridiculous. They went 15 to 25. But they also, again, they had 31 field goals in the paint. Like, they dropped a buck 30 on these dudes. And what was the pace in this game? It wasn't even a particularly fast-paced game, I don't think. That could be deceptive to the eye at times, but yeah, it was a hundred possessions, so maybe a little bit faster, but nothing crazy. So I mean, they put up one twenty nine offensive rating against the Bucks, and even if they had shot a more pedestrian number from three, right? Let's say they shoot forty percent instead of sixty percent. Well, they only took twenty five three, so it wasn't like I mean that was fifteen points. But it wasn't like a crazy number. I right? think they they made 15 threes out instead of 10, or which would have been like a more reasonable number on only 25 attempts. And maybe, particularly without Giannis, Mike Budenholzer might look at this box score and say, hey, you know, remember when everyone was like, we're letting the other team shoot too many threes and we got to, we're going to both guard the three point line and we're going to protect the paint. Well, now, particularly without Giannis Antetokounmpo and Brooke Lopez, he played 36 minutes and he, he was only negative four. A lot of this happened when it was Portis as the only big when they really just were getting completely cooked. We'll talk more about that. But maybe Mike Budenholzer will look at this and be like, all right, we don't trust these guys to shoot the ball. They haven't shot the ball all season. We are going to clean up our backyard. We are going to keep them out of the paint. Jimmy Butler just cannot be allowed to get to the basket like this. We're going to start helping off the shooters. We're going to get into guys' lap. We're going to gap more, play that old school Bucks defense. And we don't think that the math will work out well enough for Miami if we start playing that way. Again, maybe that, that'll be an adjustment potentially that we'll see from him. Now, for all those who crow about Miami shooting 15 and 25 from three, the Bucks had pretty much equal success from mid-range in the upper paint themselves they shot a crazy percentage there chris middleton looked great i mean that's probably the biggest long-term takeaway from this game is how good chris middleton looked so if Giannis can get back like that's you gotta actually feel really good about this game as the bucks there's a lot that kind of seemed like an aberration in this game um but i mean miami thoroughly outplayed milwaukee in this game i don't want to hear this yeah okay they shot a better percentage but again just to get up 47 shots in the paint like that's really really good and just it was not the same quality of bucks defense at all jimmy butler had a big part of that can we talk a little bit more about how it was that he was able to have this dominant sure game? i already went through the shot chart so i'll let you i'll let you wax eloquently about it he was just shot out of a cannon man like he was just it was much more of the on ball stuff it was just blowing by guys to the rim it was finishing well at the rim he smoked a bunch of layups in that the, the first two games actually the hawks and the bulls game and he did not do that in this game he was popping off the ground he even challenged brook lopez got blocked a couple of times 
but uh, he was successful there and then when Lopez was out and particularly when they went with Kevin Love at center Milwaukee had absolutely no answers for Butler surrounded by four shooters particularly when those guys were making shots they had at one point I think it was Struess Vincent Love was it Martin was the last guy that's how I'm remembering it was yeah I mean I mean it was it might have even been somebody who's a better shooter than that out there and they just could not deal with it at all and, and I mean Butler he, just the level of aggression he played and particularly coming off of the play-in against the Bulls where he was awesome as well I mean this is close to 36 hours after that and some people are like why isn't this game the first game of the day I'm like well because Miami played a, a game that ended at like 10 o'clock p.m on Friday that's why and yeah I mean he was just incredible 11 assists as well three steals it was just i mean he was the best player out there again he just you he keeps doing it it's at his age with the style of game that he has it's unbelievable that he's able to be this good butler will be the key to the heat's overall success bam Adebayo ended up with a a good overall line i thought in the the kind of the part of the game when the bucks had their had all their guys i thought he struggled kind of a little bit on both ends of the floor but he did end up putting it together yeah he did and i thought he changing up his approach was good he ended up taking 15 upper paint shots himself he was 8 of 15 struggled to make them early because i thought he was catching the ball kind of on the side of the paint drifting across the paint engaging lopez and then trying to score over him where i thought he had more success particularly at the end of the game when they put the ball away was working in pick and roll catching it at the foul line and just going straight up for the jump shot when he was actually open and i think that was the difference is that when he was open he made them and when he was like had lopez right in his face that's when he was really rushing those shots and couldn't make them so he ended up playing well in the, in the end they actually started the game with bam on Giannis. Giannis beat him with a beautiful spin move right at the beginning but bam held up pretty well aside from that and of course Giannis only ended up playing the 11 minutes but he was negative nine in that time and i did think butler was pretty effective even when Giannis was out there uh, bobby portis had 21 points he was nine of ten from two missed all five of his threes as the bucks were a putrid 11 of 45 overall but again a lot of that was made up for by shooting really well during the competitive portion of the game from mid-range i think at one point they were 11 of 15 from on twos outside of the paint but i thought portis was awful on defense like absolutely even worse than he normally is and part of that was exacerbated by kevin love playing so well. it made their let's see what's the right word phrase there were there were fewer places for portis to kind of like hide and the absence of Giannis, of course like that's been something that i've harped on for years now is that having a rim protector allows portis to be a different type of player and they don't really have that other guy they don't have a robin lopez or anybody else and so a lot is going to fall on portis's shoulders for as long as not only Giannis is off is unavailable but for any time that he's limited and so that or if brooke gets into foul trouble or anything else and the the bucks depth and, and you know uh, there was a, a moment and i think it was the the tnt pregame for this game where they're talking about the bucks is like the deepest team in the nba and i'm like no 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 like they have a lot of guys but they don't necessarily have a lot of guys they don't have duplication over things they don't they, they and they also don't have a five player lineup that i truly trust well i think they have a few that they they could get to but it's they do have some of these one-way guys, Portis, Joe Ingles. Joe Ingles matched up against Jimmy Butler <laughs> a couple of times. That was like a hilarious flop it off. Was, but it was Ingles kind of spectacular in the way that you like you appreciate it for the absurdity. Like that one where they, bou- yeah, where they, they started, bounced off yeah. each other and basically both jumped like full full speed. Yeah, that, that was a foul on Ingles. It was. Uh, <laughs> and the Bucks started with Holiday 
on Butler, and I think they ultimately, had the game been closed on the end, would have gone to Anacumpo on Butler instead. And I mean, what did I'm trying to remember how they matched up early with Giannis with Vincent Hero Struess? Butler and Adebayo. I I don't remember Giannis guarding Butler. I guess I maybe I'll go back and look at that afterwards. It, but it, it, yeah, they, I'm pretty sure they had Holiday on. So I guess they were having Giannis hide out on Struits or something. And maybe that's why they were able to get to the rim more. Maybe they should have just started with Giannis uh, on Butler because Giannis just wasn't able to have the effect. Uh, Lopez didn't have as much one either. And, and of course, with the heat shooting so well, Vincent has continued his recent hot run. 33 minutes, four or five from three. He hit some very difficult deep ones. Sad four. Milwaukee native Tyler Hero broke two fingers on his right hand diving for a loose ball in the backcourt going after Grayson Allen for once Grayson Allen didn't do anything bad it was just Allen was reaching for the ball and Hero got his hand caught on him and uh, immediately broke his hand and then uh, attempted to shoot a three-pointer with a broken yeah, hand. Ever, ever, before <laughs> which, that which Hero tried to ask that. out of the game but there was like 28 seconds left and so they couldn't really do a sub there and then the ball goes to him. Gabe Vincent threw that pass. I mean I'm sure Gabe Vincent didn't know. Threw a hard pass to Hero hero catches it and fires away and that has to have, that has to have hurt and yeah so hero out for i believe i saw four to six weeks so other than the best case scenario for miami that means he's probably out for the remainder of their playoff run one would think so back to the bucks but i think he played 10 guys in the first quarter and it seemed like he was definitely kind of in hey it's first game of the playoffs Let's just play everyone, kind of see what happens. And so Crowder, Portis, Javon Carter, Wes Matthews, Joe Ingles all played. I think Wes Matthews, particularly if Giannis can't play in the next game, is going to have to take on a larger role defending. It's a very Marquette series with Matthews, now Jay Crowder on the Bucks as well. Maybe Crowder can get more of a look at Butler, but I thought uh, Butler really blew by Crowder when Crowder tried to guard him. And sure, they can try to back off, but the problem is you can't just back off of Butler now because he'll just get to his spot and without uh, that traditional Bucks rim protection in there, like you can't just like let him back up. He'll just eat up the space and then he's in the paint and he's going to score. So they, they need to have a little more pressure on him, even though he's not a good shooter. You can kind of back off him a little bit more if you have both... Uh, uh, Lopez and Giannis behind him or if you're just Giannis in general you could back off a little bit more and force him to shoot the jump shot uh I mean the holiday another struggle for him I mean he just it seems like no matter how well he shoots the ball in the regular season he's just it struggles to shoot it in the playoffs two of nine from downtown did have 16 assists so I wasn't like wowed by his passing necessarily Middleton I thought he was just getting great separation in the mid-range probably shot unsustainably well and he didn't have a great pick and roll partner he had four assists wasn't able to get his passing game going that much but again he was he looked good athletically got to the foul line for 10 free throw attempts with some of his bullshit foul drawing even it worked well as a rebounder with nine rebounds it had a couple of offensive rebounds where he looked spry so 33 points in 33 minutes again that's we worried about him with the knee issue we'll see how he recovers having played this many minutes in this game i'm sure that having him go for 25 shooting possessions was not what bud had in mind as a workload for him coming off of more missed time due to his knee so hopefully he's not going to wear down but at least for one game very encouraging and so all eyes kind of turn now to what will happen with Giannis I, I'm I mean obviously if Giannis is out then you wonder about the Bucks ability to win the series 
Game two is big. The Bucks are going to shoot better. Milwaukee's going to shoot worse from three. But they are going to have to figure something out with Jimmy Butler. And I don't know that they have an answer if Giannis is unavailable. And particularly if when Brooke Lopez is out of the game. But he played 36 minutes. They went to a, a 1-2-2 at the end of the first half. That was really interesting where they essentially were like, okay, Jimmy Butler, you want to flash to the free throw line in the zone and just be one-on-one against Brooke Lopez in the paint? Like, we're comfortable with that. They blocked him once. Butler scored on him once. And also, Portis just was helping without helping and they gave up a corner three after which Lopez had to say uh yeah I got him that's the whole point of this defense remember so maybe we'll see a little bit more of that as a, a means to just like leverage Brook Lopez as their really good defender uh but yeah it's going to be interesting like how Bud is going to go is he going to lean into a lot more defense now if Giannis can't play or is he going to try to get more shooting on the floor because they couldn't make a shot in this game which was supposed to be alleviated now that they got Joe Ingles he did his part three of seven everyone else uh rest the team not so, not so good and where we'll see what if there are any lingering things kevin love looked like he was uncomfortable with his back though he did play i believe after that point lowry only 19 minutes but i thought caleb martin looked good off of their bench he played 26 minutes and, and did reasonably well but of course the absence of hero is going to shift around the rotation we did see the exhumed duncan robinson during a part of that and so that puts even more on jimmy butler and bam out shoulders because there aren't that many other playmakers left they have some play finishers but they don't really have advantage creators unless Lowry really really steps up yeah Lowry went from 33 points in the first playing game to two points in 19 minutes in this one Vincent of course was going well but they'll need more from Lowry at this point but Hero could have been a big figure in this series because the Bucks don't really play that let's go after the weakest defender type of game maybe Middleton is equipped to do that but of course Hero won't be heard from it in the series but that's I thought it was interesting we didn't see Victor Oladipo at all and it seemed like really Eric Spolster's philosophy is we're just going to get as much shooting on the floor as we can like going with Kevin Love at backup center and he played well he's not going to play this well again you would think but like with the Bucks lone rim protector guarding him like that caused a lot of problems like forcing Giannis to guard a shooter like that was I think Spo was like hey our problem is we can't score against these guys we think we can defend them well enough we're just going to put as much shooting on the floor as we can and that obviously worked extremely well in this game any other adjustments of note for the Bucks? Oh, no, I think we've talked about this game probably long enough. Let's get to the last game of the day. The Minnesota Timberwolves scored 80 points against the Denver Nuggets. It was a dispiriting performance overall from the Minnesota Timberwolves. I would... From the Wolves? Really? Wolves? Dispiriting? It, it happens from time to time. Um, But, I mean, yeah, let's, we could start with the cleaning the glass offensive rating, which was in the first percentile, 86 offensive rating for the Minnesota Timberwolves. And yeah, of course, some of the credit there goes to the Denver Nuggets. They they had some good defensive performances. Minnesota, 79 offensive rating on first shot half court possessions. Somehow a 60 offensive rating in transition, which is jaw dropping and a uh, a zero offensive rating on their six steals. Um, Towns, five of 15 from the field. Edwards, six of 15 from the field. And they, it, it was just, yeah, and, and Gobert you know he had his offensive limitations at the forefront at times I actually thought at times the Nuggets paid him too much respect a little bit at some specific moments and I expect Minnesota's best players to improve from this point and they kind of have to whether it's a dead cat bounce or an actual like they're obviously better than this but especially with Jaden McDaniels out with that fractured hand the pathways 
involve like those guys going supernova, not just playing better, but being the best player or second best player on the floor, probably second and third, two of two of Towns, Edwards, and Gobert. And they didn't look close to that in this one. We kind of talked about how there's some matchup advantages Minnesota had or might have, other disadvantages that they might have. The biggest disadvantage was they don't have a spread pick and roll game that could really put Jokic into difficulty and get these guys scrambling around. The other disadvantage that I said was Aaron Gordon is about as good of a matchup as there is in the league on Carl Anthony Towns and Carl Anthony Towns was awful at one point I think he was two out of ten couldn't hit a three and I thought they should have gone more pick and roll game with Conley and Towns to try to get him going on the pick and pop that's something I'd like to see or just Conley in general orchestrating the offense and letting the rest of these guys work off the ball Edwards was actually good in the first half but then he got shut down in the second half foul, uh, foul trouble start foul, Nuggets, foul trouble yeah. started that and then just kind of escalated yeah yeah I was surprised that Chris Finch took him out with four fouls as the game was slipping away from them like you know down 15 in the third why not just keep him out there because you're going to lose anyway if you take him out which is exactly what happened not that that would have changed the outcome on, on a night like this and I think the Nuggets really emphasized Edwards after halftime when Gobert would screen for him off the ball. Jokic stepped out really hard. The Bulls ball movement wasn't good enough to take advantage of that. They didn't find Gobert when he was open, rolling to the rim with an advantage, which is when you need to find Gobert. Instead, they forced the ball down to him. They only had two turnovers in the first half and still only put up 44 points. And then the turnovers started to come in the third. Towns had a couple of drives, tried to throw it to Gobert, the terrible passes. Conley had him on an open side pick and roll. Uh, Gobert couldn't catch it and lost it. I mean, he's just, he's really kind of falling apart to some degree on offense. And so just the, the Wolves offense didn't have, like if Carl Anthony Towns isn't going to be able to dominate offensively like these guys are just going to be a bad offensive team and Aaron Gordon is strong enough that Towns can't overpower him on those drives he's quick enough to keep up with him so I think they really need to emphasize the pick and pop with Towns try to get Conley going downhill making the decision like he's the only guy on this team who can really pass and really gives them ball movement and you know if you go under on him maybe you can bang the three like I think he just needs to be more emphasized so Wolves offense was absolute garbage I thought they actually defended well enough in the half court to win, though. Like I, I thought they were actually pretty darn good. They s- sent help at reasonably appropriate moments. There was a little too much to me helping off of the absolute best shooters for Denver. Like there were a couple of those opportunities, but by and large, I thought they they did a, a pretty decent job there. I thought they did a completely respectable job on the defensive glass as well. And Jokic is a wonderful, you know, he was an individually a successful offensive rebounder, some of which off his own miss. But overall, yeah, I, I would say that Minnesota's half court defense was up was up to the task. And when you consider how good Denver is offensively, yeah, they started Canadian defensive specialists. Nikhil Alexander-Walker, who apparently defends any Canadian that he is on really well. well. It, he, he did a really good job at Jamal Murray. for whatever reason, Jamal Murray just keeps on trying to post him up instead of doing anything else. That was weird. Yeah, and Nikhil did, did a, a good, maybe an overrated got, r- job on Gilgis Alexander. I thought it was more the Wolves team concept that really lim- limited Gilgis Alexander on Friday. But he was solid enough on Jamal Murray. And you know, Porter Jr. was he was 7-17, 4-9 from 3. Like, it's survivable. Like, they only put up a buck now. 
nine in this game in the end. And the Wolves never had more than 23 points in any quarter. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, and Jokic, 28 minutes, he fouled out. He had a couple of really bad fouls in the third quarter that if this game were closer, we would be talking about more where he just, just out of position, just dumb reach. His third and fourth fouls were pretty asinine. I had turned the game off to see his fifth and sixth foul because it was a 25-point game late in the third, and we just wanted to start oh, there was recording. A point, there was a point Six where assists, Gordon yeah. got into weird foul trouble, too. He got, like, two ticky-tack ones, but yeah. then he stayed. I think they kept him in the game. They also kept Jokic in the game a little bit after his foul trouble, and that worked out reasonably well. Yeah, Gordon had three fouls in the first half, and but I thought they started off with a strategy they'd gone to earlier, but it was with Kyle Anderson. This time it was Towns as the main matchup on Jokic, and Jokic kind of cooked Towns. They, the idea was, let's keep Gobert out of the action more as a rover. We'll force Aaron Gordon to shoot from the outside and Gobert under the basket. At least we're going to not give up Jokic passes for dunks, but the defensive three-second rule makes that a little bit harder, and you don't want to come with the hard double team on Jokic because then he's really going to start finding guys. So he was able to work to into position and, and get some buckets on Towns, but I thought Gobert defended him well. He tried to post up Gobert a couple of times, and you know, Jokic is going to score some, but it wasn't just a parade to the rim that Jokic tried like some of his pirouetting post moves and Gobert sent it back in his face at one point like I, I thought Gobert was solid enough defensively tough to finish around at the rim and the Nuggets uh, ended up being 17 to 27 at the rim in the end but again part of that was garbage time the biggest difference in the game though you mentioned the Wolves terrible offensive rating in transition and again this is something I'm always going to look at because it seems like it's a big variable especially in that Buck Celtic series last year during the competitive portion of the game the Nuggets off their own misses or I'm sorry, off the Wolves' misses, had a 185 offensive rating in transition when they ran. They ran a decent percentage of the time, but the Wolves had so many misses mm-hmm. <laughs> that the Nuggets going to be able to run. And with Gobert, who doesn't run the way he used to, Towns is one of the worst transition defenders probably in NBA history. And he's at the four a lot of these times too, not even the five, where you hope to have someone with more mobility. So that's really where they got completely cooked was in transition. Nuggets got some of their threes. They shot 16 to 39 from down. There's actually a lot of threes to go up for the Nuggets. Uh, Wolves can play better than this. Though it didn't happen in Miami, there's certainly a fatigue level that the Nuggets didn't have. Everyone looked fresh. I picked this in six. Obviously not feeling great about that after this game. Perhaps the Wolves can rally it. But if they, and they just have to be better offensively to be, and Towns has to play better, but maybe he's just not capable of doing that against Aaron Gordon. All right, then that will do it for today's show. And if you listen on the free pod, you're getting almost three hours of content about this weekend's games. We went hard. But if you were a Prime subscriber, you would have gotten all of yesterday's games last night. So I hope you will consider doing that. Link to that is in the show notes. A great time to be a subscriber going into free agency and the draft. And of course, uh, all of the NBA playoffs as well. This is our time to shine. We go pretty nuts here over. We're going to do offseason outlooks on all 30 teams. We'll do the top 10 players in the draft scouting reports. We're we're going crazy here over the next three months. So a great time to subscribe. Hope you'll consider you get Hollinger and Duncan as well you get dan's daily dunks get access to our discord lots and lots of great stuff talk to y'all soon we got another day of nba action so it's time for your fan crew to make their bets you know that new customers who bet five dollars get two hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you win make every night a watch party only on fan 
21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus best that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER.